What it do, fellow gamers? Welcome to the Dear Apparition Podcast. I am your host, Steve, and joined with me are other hosts, Hunter. Say hello, Hunter. Hey, how you doing? And also over there is our resident Brit, Rue. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Rue, give us a give us there. a quick uh, keyboard flourish for your for your intro. I just want to hear that sweet keyboard. Uh, okay. I'll, I will do this for Her Majesty herself. How was that? Beautiful. Was that good? That is Beautiful. incredibly yeah. sexy. My loins are incredibly moist. <laughs> so today we are going to be d- discussing the album by the band The Deer Hunter. Complete shocker, right? Uh, act two, the meaning of and all things regarding misleading. Not to be confused with our group, the meaning of and all things regarding The Deer Hunter. Uh, joined with us, we have a special member from the group, uh, the community itself. We have Nick Weber, who is a writer for the website True Name Music, where Nick also reviews or analyzes the albums. And also, Nick was working for uh, was working on the album Aquarius by Haken for an analysis as well. So, uh, with that, Nick, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, so this is uh this is quite the follow up to uh, Act One. We took all the feedback that you guys have been sending us. Uh, we made a thread earlier to see what you guys thought of the album. Uh, very much a lot of meme responses and a lot of hey, it's a good album. So very useful, incredibly helpful stuff. Very useful. <laughs> yeah, very as, as we us. all as we all know from the Act One episode, I, I'm very excited to talk about the first Act album. Uh, so this is Hunter. I will fucking shake <laughs> you where you sit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just I'm really excited about this episode because it's uh, this this album is uh, I, I I mean not to dig into the conversation we had on an act, act one episode too much, but this is for me just where it all comes to a head. And there's just so much here, so I am looking forward to it. Um, let, let's get right into it. All right, let's get right into it. So uh, one thing that's great is that now we have Nick who uh, did do really in-depth analyses of uh, of the acts, and Nick was actually telling us about how badly we did the act one episode. So we're looking to make this one a little bit better and uh, make this one a little bit more <laughs> engaging and authentic without my really bad pronunciations of all the uh, foreign languages that I cannot speak because I'm a filthy American that can only speak English. So, okay, so uh, Steve, Steve's going to read the Blood of the Rose lyrics live on air then. Oh my <laughs> lord, you do not want that. I, I, did Just, a, uh, I was editing the Gavin <laughs> episode and I did a uh, sound drop where I pronounced the name of the tour and immediately after I said that I'm like, please don't be mad at me for butchering this. I worked really hard. This, this and is- and a, couple, a couple of quick clarification points just before we get into it. Uh, one, I want to talk about Nick's blog because I mean, to, to say that he did an analysis is an understatement because it is, it is really, really in-depth, not, not only the music and the lyrics, but the story. It is definitely worth checking out if you're a Deer Hunter fan because it's it's got stuff that will will blow your mind. So definitely go check out True Name Music. And uh, Steve just mentioned our Gavin interview, which uh, as of the time of recording this, we haven't released. But if you haven't listened to that, go check it out. We have two episodes uh, interviewing Gavin Castleton. It's an awesome time. Very funny um, shows. Oh, my God. Those are so funny. So with, with that out of the way, uh, you know. Uh, Steve, how do, how do you want to start this out? Do you want to kind of do an overview of the story? Um, do you want to kind of talk about what the album means to each of us personally? Well, we were actually, we were all discussing this before the episode started because uh, we didn't start recording before when we do our pre-show meetings. Uh, we laid out a lot of the groundwork with Act 1. Um, we can't really reference the comics too much. We have the Act 
two comic the first issue. I believe there's going to be two or three. Four. Were they four? Act two? Yeah, I think there's four of them. I am very much caught up with this information, as you can tell. Uh, so we are going to uh, be going in depth into all this. Uh, act two picks up right where uh, Act one leaves off. Where Act one leaves off, you have the applause at the end. Where if you stuck around to the end of the episode, you would have heard that little uh, Easter egg. Um, and going right into it, you have the death and the birth. Where uh, it starts off very melancholy with uh, with the orchestration and following the theme that Hunter pointed out, the curtains open up right into uh, the procession. So who wants to take off the start of the analyses of, uh, of this record? Well, I would, I would really like to tap into Nick's knowledge on this one because, I mean, although we're all really familiar with, with the story, uh, I would be, if I tried to give my own analysis, I would really just be picking up where they left off. So, Nick, if you want to kind of briefly explain the, the beginning of this album, where we're at with the story, where Hunter is, um, you know, just, just as much as you know, because like I said, you're, you're really in-depth with all this. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, also, Steve, so, did you just say that Act 2 starts with the procession? No, I said Act 2 starts with the death and the birth, and then the curtains open up into the procession. Okay, well, I wasn't paying attention. My bad. <laughs> That's okay. We, we all drift in and out. So. None of us pay attention to Steve. <laughs> I don't even pay attention to me, so it's all good. Um, okay, I actually, I have my own blog pulled up here. I'm probably just going to be ripping from That's this. That's perfectly fine. Uh, it looks like we're going to be going back. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed that we did the song-by-song uh, song breakdown because they felt that it allowed us to give every song the um, the attention that it deserves as opposed to if we did an overarching album analysis that they feel we would leave some stuff out. And I know that for a fact my favorite track on this album will be left out uh, if we did an overarching analysis. So it's good we're doing track-by-track. Track. So yeah, so Nick, if you, if you with, just want to pick up, uh, where, where are we at with the beginning of this album? Where Where is the story? Uh, so it's been, uh, I believe, a few years after Act One. He's kind of like a young adult now, like mid-teens around there, maybe a little bit late teens. Um, and he and his mother are still living out uh, by the lake in the tree, but the album actually opens with him discovering uh, his mother has actually passed away. Yeah, the circumstances of the way Miss Terry died. Uh, I was I was going through your blog to kind of prepare for this episode because, like like I said, any knowledge I have kind of comes from that anyway, just because it's it's so detailed. But um, you kind of reference what Casey said about how Miss Terry died, about how a lot of us believed it was kind of like a murder thing, but he dispelled that pretty outrightly, and um, kind of how the lyrics support you know the how the blood makes such a scene. Um, and I think you had a take on what exactly that could mean. Uh, yeah, I think I said at one point that I believed it could have possibly been like a heart attack or something, uh, just because it described like, I believe shaky hands in the procession. Um, I saw a few people reference on like different forums that it possibly could have been like a disease that she had gotten from her line of work, like some form of STI. I don't know anything about <laughs> STI, so I don't know how like, I think we'd have to go to Steve. We need an expert on STIs to tune in. I don't know if any yeah, of that. I actually lethal. haven't gotten to that class because I'm, I'm, uh, in, in school to be a nurse and I haven't gotten to all the STI stuff. Otherwise I'd be able to flout or uh, flaunt my knowledge at the moment, but I can't do that. So I could phone a friend. Oh, wow. You're, you're, <laughs> I think, I think we could just suffice it to say it may be some sort of STI situation. It's a little vague and open ended. Um, but really that this, this beginning of the album, the death and the birth and leading into the procession is kind of just, I mean, almost like what that one did kind of just setting the stage for, okay, this is, this is where we are right now. 
Uh, and then we're going into what the actual story is, which is once Hunter gets to the city. So at this point, uh, the death and the birth is, uh, to my knowledge, I'm pretty sure it's the only instrumental opening for all the the act albums. Uh, I was actually regarding the uh, the Miss Terry death. I was I remember I was reading into it. Oh, I forgot when I read it yeah. somewhere that uh, it was of natural causes. Even though Hunter, as you would know with your program, natural causes kind of bullshit. Uh, things just there's usually an objective cause of death, but it might it may have just been of older age, or maybe because of the time period she didn't live as long, because this is like pre World War One. I'm thinking that Casey intentionally left it a little bit vague because it was supposed to be something that like was sort of out of nowhere that no one really expected to happen. Well, and Casey even said that um, one of one of his kind of regrets about writing the story early on is that he wished he had fleshed out Mystery a bit more. So it, it may be that he left it vague because he. He may not have known. He just he, he knew that she needed to die, uh, which poor poor Miss Terry. She just has to be a martyr for this whole story. But yeah, she just had to die, and um, <laughs> hey, that's just what happened. You know, maybe the the why isn't really the the important part. So yeah, that's that's how we we open up the album. Death and Birth, as I mentioned, is the the only instrumental uh, beginning. What do you think the reason for that might be? Like it, it seems like he really committed to doing these um, acapella or at least. You know, intros that have some, some amount of singing and limited instrumentation. Why do you think on this album he decided to make it such a short intro and it's all instrumental? I would, I'll pitch him with this one. I would say that because it references a lot of themes right from the get-go, so you have the, you have that piano arpeggio thing from the bittersweet one, from, ah, from the bittersweet one, sorry. So the, uh, that's very quiet in the background. There's also the uh, the the red hands violin that you can hear as well, um, and I'm pretty sure there's uh, something else that I'm missing as well. That there always is with these kind of things, but I think being able to establish those themes right from the get go is it kind of serves as the the overture for the album. I think that makes sense. And I guess with uh, with Act 1 ending off with the orchestra warming up, maybe this is literally just an extension of that. Like the the end of Act 1 was almost just, I mean, as we talked about in our Act 1 episode, I don't want to rehash too many things, but it's basically just setting the stage for Act 2. So the orchestra swells, this starts out with the orchestra, and we're right into it. So I, I think for the most part, um, yeah, Rue mentioned a couple of reprises that come or that are used in Death and the Birth, but it's a very, very short track. There's no, there's no lyrics. Um, so... I think we can pretty much go right into the procession. Which is story-wise, uh, as, as Nick mentioned, uh, Miss Terry died, and this is literally just a funeral procession of, of Hunter experiencing his mother's death, um, kind of co- coping with how that's affecting him, where that's going to take him. I'm actually I'm reading the lyrics, and uh, one thing that Nick mentioned that he hates is that I take subjective approaches with these album breakdowns. <laughs> I did, I, eh. so i'm gonna i'm gonna keep do, going hardcore with my subjective album breakdowns um <laughs> sure when reading the uh when reading the lyrics is actually it starts off pretty like in your face the blood how it paints such a scene uh foul routine pedigree mouth agape stuttered hands attempt to flail and finally agree all this whole first verse really just paints the picture of miss terry's death showing uh it's not really making it look beautiful it's making it sh- look real like this isn't a this isn't a fantasy. This isn't a dream. This is actually happening right in front of Hunter's eyes. When I think that kind of plays to um, 
what some of the other lyrics lend to and what uh, especially the end of the song kind of suggests that which is basically this is hunter's wake-up call in life like his i mean of course he he remains naive throughout the album um but this is this is really where he's on his own this whole time he's kind of had his mother protecting him shielding him and he's never really been exposed to anyone else the outside world and now suddenly the only person he's really ever known is gone so i i think that kind of lends to it this is hunter's raw interpretation of his mother's death and how dramatic and significant that would be in his life hmm. that's interesting I mean, unless uh, unless someone else has a different interpretation, that, that's kind of how I'm considering it. I'll jump over to Ruru. What do you think over there? You're being awfully quiet. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking. I've been listening. I think I'm, I kind of disagree with you, Steve. I think. Oh no! In in kind of Hunter's naivety, I think he's almost glamorizing it too much. I mean, I know this is meant to be written with with some level of you know poeticness because it's uh, it, it's a song and it's uh, you know it's a concept album and such and such but hearing it from hunter's as in the current character hunter's perspective he describes it uh almost too beautifully i think for it to i, I it's almost as if it hasn't well, that's, fully set in yeah and i, th- I think so, now that i'm gonna throw a left hook back right at real uh oh, okay Whew. the uh for see for verse one what i'm saying is this is very like an objective perspective on death uh the pre-chorus where he says um there no cry places over her eyes we are broken alone that's kind of hunter reasoning with himself with the news and the chorus has a juxtaposition to it she's inanimate bloodless elegance fatal fascination breeds a bloom of misery showing that that's Hunter reasoning with himself, but I'm saying for the very first verse, I'm viewing that as more of an objective perspective on how he viewed her death. He just sees her lying there dead <laughs> on the, on the ground. Yeah. When I think something, something worth considering kind of lending to what Rue was saying is that, um, this, this is kind of Hunter's interpretation of things. And I think this starts to establish because now Hunter is, uh, something resembling a cognizant adult. I mean, he, he may still be in his teenage years, but he's starting to kind of come into his own as far as how he views the world and how he uh, can recognize his own feelings and actions in it. And I almost wonder whether or not Hunter's even a reliable narrator. And this will kind of play into everything we get into with all the other acts, but a lot of this is told from Hunter's perspective. And just given that we've painted this picture of him being extremely naive, extremely uh, uneducated about the world, and a lot of the stuff we are seeing is from his point of view, how much can we actually take at face value? I mean, how much this is intentionally supposed to be him misinterpreting situations because i think that's kind of a theme of the album uh, is, yeah is i was gonna say the whole album misinterpreting the things. whole album is from hunter's perspective which is why he can come across as being really immature and, and quite rash especially in later songs which we'll get to in like uh dim misleading in which he, he's being a very immature person and i think it's it's that thing of there's always two sides to a story or there's always more than one side to a story. It's so all I about think the balance. It's all about the balance. It is indeed. So yeah, I, I would disagree. I would say it's more, it's more ob- uh, subjective rather than objective uh, pers- perspective. Oh, so you're taking the Steve side, I see. Nick, as someone who's broken down this album uh, in pretty in-depth, what, what do you think about the overall reliability of Hunter's interpretations oh, he's, of situations? He's a horrible I mean, should, we, 
should we from the beginning of this album start yes. questioning what he's saying absolutely and i think you said not to bring in the graphic novels too much but um if you oh feel free to i, I mean i used it as like a bible last okay, time yeah so there's scenes all over where it's like obviously he's overly imaginative and things like there's the dude with a horse head in the first act uh, yeah that struck me as well which like yeah when you when you're first reading it it's like very like oh well i didn't i didn't really expect that um but i think once you start to realize that it's kind of from his perspective and that's just like his imagination and the same thing with like the oracle uh meeting it's uh his perspective is definitely just whack well especially whack. once because we do introduce and we'll get into this a little bit more in depth uh, we're just kind of generally going over the themes of, of the album but they do introduce these characters called the oracles uh which as as we kind of interpret them are something like soothsayers or uh fortune readers or something like that but um and i they, think they, I they reappear this. throughout the albums too yeah yeah definitely and, and i mentioned this the beginning of i mentioned this during the act one episode but casey has said uh, a couple of times he's he's really kind of uh, double down on this that there's nothing mystical within mm. the act storyline so it almost makes you wonder whether or not hunter is uh almost painting these people out to be something they're not which is you know maybe maybe it's kind of a foregone conclusion thing like he's using them as a crutch mm. to kind of paint a picture of how he thinks his life's going to go or use them as like a a way to view the world as a in a detached sense because he's not used to experiencing it personally I don't really know. I'm just trying to des desperately find some kind of meaning. I'm yeah, going to throw I, I, two uh, spicy perspectives at you. Uh, first one, they could just be his conscience. Uh, that's probably the most plausible thing. Uh, second, uh, in Act 5, I, in the uh, the Moon Awake, he wasn't Hunter was in an opium den. So it could be right. drugs or some sort of uh, narcotic that influences his cognition. Well, that, that was actually a conversation I had with someone... Uh, earlier too is is that um was this actually a conversation you have with someone or is this just you saying that again <laughs> this is not me making it up this time this was actually i, I had a conversation <laughs> with someone because they were listening to our ad one episode and they were giving me feedback um because casey kind of said that the story makes the most sense when you start with act four and then go back to one two three is like a flashback Record to scratch. give context to act five and so it almost makes you think you know with hunter being uh, older he's gone through war he's probably suffering some amount of post-traumatic stress he's obviously kind of uh, going through stressful situations and drug addiction are these things as we can kind of interpret as his memories of his past can like, like i said can they be reliable are some of these things embellishments of his own mind or, or maybe just uh things he's convinced himself of what do you think i of don't Dominic? know um i want to say i don't even know if hunter is necessarily even like the narrator for most of this though well i, I would say that we're a especially the pre-chorus of this song it, it says we so i would assume that it's from somebody's perspective in the story yeah and it, it almost regardless of like uh which which tense the 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 narration takes whether or not it's hunter or a different character it's entirely possible that if this is some sort of flashback or a memory or uh kind of a him looking back at his life maybe he is kind of almost looking at the story from someone else's perspective and and by doing so kind of painting a picture of what he thought they were experiencing uh, like it's it's kind of a theory because of course it hasn't been confirmed and there's no act there's no act four or five comics yet or anything like that but it does seem at least a little bit plausible that maybe some of this unreliability we've seen in the account of act two um and kind of the the exaggerated characters and how they behave with hunter i i, I think it is plausible that it could just be 
the extent of his own insecurities or his, his faulty memory. I don't know, but like I said, that's going to kind of fan theory territory. So um, as far as where we are in the story, like we said, uh, Miss, Miss Terry's died. Hunter's kind of interpreting that as how he feels. And let, let's talk about the procession as a song, because, I mean, this is really comes out the gate as a really strong explosive. Oh, it's so big. Uh, I, uh, I, I always people hate uh, how I pronounce it. It's I think in Kauda is in Kauda. Is that the way you pronounce that song? Uh, just go super country with it. Incada Venenum. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go New York like I always fucking do. Incada. Uh, no. <laughs> for Incada is kind of the. I keep. I'm bringing it to that because I think Act Three learned a lot of, from Act Two, and it, they both are that kind of explosive intro. And um, like Hunter said in the Act One episode, when uh, in it was the lakes. Is it the River North the outro right? So yes. in the in the river north where it winds where uh, the orchestra is warming up and you hear applause and then there's kind of you know going at it for a little bit, um, that yeah. goes right into uh, that goes right into the start of uh, of the album the death and the birth which goes into the procession just kind of straight into your face, and uh, the song follows the kind of theme that the city escaped did where it's just very it's instrumentation that's kind of held back a little bit for the beginning of it after the uh, intro. And it's Casey just belting out powerful vocal melodies over the uh, over the tracks. I made a note of this because, like I said, I was listening to the album before we did this, and I was also going through Nick's blog. And something that Nick said in his analysis, which, Nick, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, so if I'm getting something wrong, feel free to cut me off. But you said that um, within this song, not only is a hunter experiencing the funeral procession literally, but it's also um, toward the end him kind of deciding where to go. Like he, he decides he needs to get away from the land, the lake, and the river. And if, if that's the interpretation, it, this almost kind of parallels City Escape, like what Steve was saying. Like, this is almost because they kind of have similar vibes as far as like uh, the, the energy of the track. Uh, so I, I almost think this is like a mirror effect from Miss Terry and City Escape after a significant life event, trying to escape and go to something different or better or just something that's going to change. And this is almost a direct uh, echo. Well, of Casey that even Hunter. said directly that like uh, Inkata and City Escape were written or he wrote he wrote uh, the guitar riff in Encada like to directly parallel the City Escape riff. Um, so I think it'd be weird to not have the procession also be part of those two because uh, it takes the same spot in all the albums and it serves kind of the same purpose. It could have been Casey saying like, "Oh, it worked in Act One. Let's try it again in Act Two. You know, the second Act album and then Act Three. Yes, <laughs> it, it kind of feels like. Um, uh, George Lucas, there's a there's a documentary of him doing the the prequels for Star Wars, and he he was talking about how he was kind of writing the story, and he said it's like poetry, it rhymes. It's like poetry. Yeah, it, it, this this kind of <laughs> some pretty bad poetry. Uh, hopefully, Casey's a better storyteller than George Lucas, but uh, I, I think this kind of goes along with that, which is like uh, it, this is kind of like poetry, like this is uh, almost Hunter experiencing a similar situation as Miss Terry. I won't even get into how I like the prequels. Uh, and that I oh my god, them. we could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're about so, to start throwing some cuffs. So I wanted to ask as well on your guys' opinion on this, because what interests me about this album in particular is how certain corporations are kind of recycled and reused, and the procession is kind of the first example that we see uh, in Act 2. So we get that kind of chromatic bass line... 
that kind of progression being reused again and again in different songs. So we hear it again in the verses of the Lake and the River. Church of the Dime. Um, and also in uh, the Church and the Dime as well, that same kind of chromatic descending thing. So I was wondering if you guys can kind of spot the connection in those kind of songs and why perhaps those chord progressions would have been used uh, as a kind well, of I mean, reprise. Nick did. Nick also did break down a lot of the musical elements, so perhaps he could uh, lend his expertise to that I a little more nicely. I actually didn't catch that that was in the lake and the river, so that's really cool. Um, but I think it also parallels the Pimp and the Priest melody with because it's like a chromatic descending thing. Yeah. I don't know if it's like a direct one-to-one. I don't know if it lines up. I haven't like looked at that at all. Um, yeah, yeah, but, it is pretty much the same. So perhaps it's kind of hinting at who's behind all this. Yeah, I think with the procession in the lake and the river, especially, it's definitely like a foreshadowing kind of thing. Mm. Uh, just kind of hinting around like Miss Terry's like her background and just like what was going on in her life before all this. Um, and then in Church in the Dime, obviously, it's like explaining uh, the dime. Mm. Yeah, it's just really interesting to me how how Casey uses musical elements and arrangement techniques to to help portray uh, events in the story. It's always quite quite interesting when you notice things like that. Well, and he really starts doing it in this album, which is which is why um, I mean Act Two kind of stands out as a, a really great beginning of the story because this is where things start getting a lot more dense and. Uh, events flow into each other a lot more directly. So when we come from something like uh, um, from the death and the birth or in, into the procession and then into the lake and the river, like it's telling this very kind of concise story. Uh, so where where exactly does uh, the procession lead into the lake and the river? Is this uh, just a kind of an extension of Hunter's self-reflection of the situation? Or uh, as far as where the story is particularly here, I have no idea. I think the procession serves the purpose that the Lake South served. Um, in a way, Act Two cut out uh, cut out the filler aspects of Act One, being the Lake South, which I don't really consider a filler. But if you view it objectively, it's a f- it's like a few minute long track that's just purely instrumental. Going with this, uh, it the Lake South worked as kind of a musical melody to kind of bring you to the scene where Casey wants to set you up where the procession is doing the same thing, but being accomplished in a different way. That, that's the kind of way I'm seeing that, uh, being that the lake, the, was it the lake in the river is the, uh, is the track that actually brings Hunter into the town and shows a lot of his kind of mental play back and forth on what's going on. I guess I guess that makes sense because I mean if you, if you look at the the lyrics of the Lake and the River, it, it does seem really um, almost like an interpretation of the events of the procession. Like it's uh, everything you live and die for, reasons le- reasons leading you through here, perish matriarchal bonds, failing innocence of love. When the world beckons your approach, it swallows you whole. So it's almost like his apprehension to uh, you know his his reticence to leave this this sheltered life of his mother and go into something that he has no idea what he's going into it could completely chew him up and spit him out at least that's that's how i'm interpreting it well actually before we get too deep into the lake and the river i just wanted to take uh Ruth's hand ever so tenderly and uh please discuss uh production of the procession if you don't mind 
yeah, take take the production element let's, away. Let's do it. Because we, we, we start... I think there's about three or four songs on this album where the production really stands out to me, the procession being one of them. Uh, both musician instrumentally as well as the production of it. Uh, one thing that I noticed, because I, I uh, listened back to the track a little bit before we started, um, at the uh, after every line, um, where it says the blood, where after he says the blood, you hear the uh, you hear. I think it's a quarter note delay with the reverb, kind of carrying it out, and it leaves the like listener just kind of anticipating what's going to come next. Yes, I, I also think. Yeah, I think uh, having that that delay, it kind of you you could kind of stretch and say this is Hunter kind of just not being able to focus on anything else. It, it's like tunnel vision almost. Yeah, bouncing around his head maybe. That's that's yeah. interesting. Oh, just came yeah. up with that. How clever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also going into it, uh, the this the drums too the um the crack of the snare the drums in act one were also very powerful i touched upon in act one which i'm not going to go too in depth here with the uh parallel distortion mm. um the way he utilized it there and here it's even stronger uh this i think is closer to act three with the production the odd numbered acts but act are usually aligned in some way um acts one two and three share a lot of that kind of rawness to an extent yeah and the drums here have really strong distortion compression, especially on that snare. That snare hit will crack you over the head and break your nose. Yeah, that's a mean snare. Oh my god, it's incredible. And uh, one more thing just to touch upon is as the uh, one with uh, the song, the um, as we discussed, it's the curtain opening. Yes. Uh, it's one thing. One thing I kind of think about when I listen to the song is curtains opening in stages. So you have the curtain open, then the sets being built and built. So you hear uh, as the song's playing, it starts off just very intimate, just Casey with the piano and a little bit of the drums, very low in the background, kind of keep time. And then you hear uh, the you hear the um, the acapella, one thing acapella, the the uh, harmonies of the other vocals coming in with him to kind of help beef him up a bit and lift him up and give a stronger presentation. And when they do that, it leads right into the. Uh, it kind of cuts out for a bit for the pre-chorus. The uh, the other vocalists do their kind of own melody while Casey sings the pre-chorus and then goes right into the chorus or just punches you in the face, and it's just full guns blazing incredible how it's presented in that regard well i i may be able to end lend a little bit of like um context to how act two was conceived and, and how it started because i did go. go through the uh, the act and origins podcast for act two before this which by the way if you haven't listened to the act and origin podcast casey did uh i mean of course finish ours first but then go and listen to that because it's very good but uh he almost he talked about how when he was creating act two there was uh he wanted to make it a more collaborative experience as far as like uh, music writing goes and then he realized kind of halfway through like there's nothing musical about this like he he realized that this had to be mostly him and so he i mean if you look at like the production credits on this thing casey did pretty much everything by himself the bass the, the guitars uh so i i think it's worth looking at when it comes to production as well like that casey's doing this a lot more by himself than he was uh in the receiving end of sirens or even in act one yeah the song also is um a lot of shouty delivery too and uh, 
this is the first time you kind of hear Casey get really gnarly with his mixed vocals, where uh, not mixed in production, but mixing his chest and his head voice to add that really distortion to if it. If I remember rightly, he was he was ill. Like his voice, his voice wasn't one hundred percent, which kind of like unintentionally makes a really great portrayal of of Hunter being a, a teenager and uh, an inexperienced person. It kind of helps to portray that that just complete naivety, that, raw, that rawness. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and I, I think from the way he described it, he was pretty uh, significantly ill. I mean, of course, not like. Uh, couldn't get out of bed type sick but he was very very congested and then his throat was kind of messed up so um i mean the, the vocals on this whole album are are spectacular i mean just in how how they portray the story as being raw and emotional and also just in the the range and uh, i mean it's it's amazing i'm not saying that we should like uh get casey sick before he records everything but obviously oh, not. Hmm. and actually this is where we could tap into the group um i we have uh blake slater who commented on the thread uh, who said, I remember being depressed after hearing the demos because first I thought sincerely that there was no way the recorded versions would capture the magic, and boy, was he wrong. It's pure magic. Uh, and we have other people saying how it did help them with their depression, and how I think it was you, Hunter, who said this. This is, I think, before we started talking, or even before it became a mod, how you said um, Act 2 is like the perfect breakup album because oh, absolutely. it captures every emotion in the spectrum of from the breakup to overcoming it to accepting it to moving on or in this case you know running away and going to war well and it's a much more complex kind of uh, introspection of those emotions i know i know hunter is very naive and and some of the ways he handles the situations here are very kind of childish but there's almost like a certain happiness to the sadness here um i mean the, the whole album kind of being the beginning and the end of a relationship and how it happened i i think that's uh, emotions aren't quite as simple as just oh what a bad thing happened i'm sad or good thing is happening i'm happy you know there's there's a lot of handshaking between feelings i i, I think this album does a really good job of just capturing and maybe it's just in representing Hunter's innocence but there's there's more complexity here than just my relationship ended i'm sad i think i yeah. said so, too in my uh one of my analysis that um like this goes through this like the whole breakup that was like kind of not really healthy and they're both just handling it not super well and so like if you like one-to-one -one for the story if you handled it that way it wouldn't really be healthy but the songs and how they're presented and how the story plays out is all just really cathartic yeah 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 i kind of got that that feeling too a hundred percent I wish I could go back and, and tap my whatever conversation you're referencing I'm, I'm sure i probably went into a little bit more detail about the, the emotional range of the album but it, you I mean, basically said what you said here this is off the top of my head I, I, I barely remember consistency <laughs> but the uh, and just the last thing I want to touch upon just quickly was uh, the poeticism of the lyrics as we were talking about how uh, obviously it cannot match um, it cannot match George Lucas's uh, poetic genius but uh, the <laughs> this, this is a Star Wars episode now right I'm just making sure <laughs> I'm not dishing on Star Wars. I, I liked uh, some of the hated episodes, so I understand that there's subjectivity there for everyone. Um, but there's not though. But I, I, it's okay. Continue. God, Hunter. We're, one day we're gonna have just uh, the biggest <laughs> fight, and we're gonna just the, be ranting. The prequels are objectively terrible, but we'll, we'll do a whole other episode. I'm gonna at you that. about uh, the color before the sun, and it's just gonna be that for an hour and forty-five minutes. You better watch out. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, we'll, we'll bring Nick in, and we'll have a whole argument about Star Wars one of these days. <laughs> 
um oh man we'll, we'll do that as a bonus episode bonus run uh so for the chorus when he says uh she's inanimate bloodless elegance fatal fascination breeds a bloom of misery that's just powerful powerful delivery of these lyrics as well as the lyrics themselves along with a helpless hiding tons bathed in revulsion here lies unfinished beauty wilting premature you can't be too sure it's like it's definitely coming from someone who has experienced these feelings before has processed these feelings to a very strong degree and is projecting it after time of sitting on it digesting those feelings and letting it kind of marinate in his own cognition before pushing it back out you know yeah well and i think it's also worth considering that casey has uh, reflected on the the kind of inspiration for these acts and and acknowledged that perhaps he wasn't uh, approaching it the the healthiest of ways and i i think it's it's nice that in this album uh, the character that in in the most ways represents himself i mean i'm not saying that hunter is uh, a representation of casey but obviously just kind of the the emotional experience here. I, I think it's it's telling that he doesn't paint Hunter to be uh, the good guy here. I mean, once we get into some of the later songs and uh, some some of the ways that Hunter treats misleading and kind of misunderstands the situations, we can get into that more. But yeah, no, I, I think the lyrics are very um, not self-congratulatory. Like, it's not just saying, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing these feelings and these are the right ones. It's There's a lot of, a lot of ways to interpret it. So yeah, I, I agree with like the poeticism of the lyrics on that one. All right, and I think, do any of you have anything else you want to add? I just want to say that it's a little bit of a thing to note that in the chorus, uh, he's referring to Miss Terry as, uh, like, flower imagery, like the bloom of misery and wilting premature. Yeah. Uh, It's just something to note, because it comes up later when he talks about misleading also. Yeah, he does mention flowers uh, a few times, and and this kind of starts to create that pretty edible. yeah, the, the Oedipus complex. There's almost uh, a really, really direct kind of uh, <laughs> Oedipus thing going on here. So I'm not I'm not saying that Casey's doing doing that for for any reason. Maybe he he wanted to kind of uh, express just how much Hunter learned from his mother in that uh, the woman he ends up with is very similar to her in uh, kind of her profession and the way Hunter views her. What do you think his favorite flower was? Oh my <laughs> fucking god. <laughs> <laughs> I was. <laughs> I guess all uh, hunters just love flowers. I think huh. that's just that's what we can take away from this. Oh, I can't even think of the name of the flower. I, I'm imagining it like a, a pinkish with like the uh, with kind of crimson red around the edges of the petals. What kind of flower is that? So I was just thinking I mean, uh, the, rose, but yeah, that the, might have just the, been... the blood of the rose is a, a track on here. But before we get too bogged down and just the, yeah. the introduction of this album, we're gonna have a, a repeat of Act, act One. So let's move on to some of the other songs so we can get yeah, the, exactly. the story out of the way. So with that, I'm sorry for bringing us backwards. Uh, I'm known to be quite regressive. But uh, with that, let's start the lake in the river. Woo! Insert applause here. I'm cheering. Yeah, so I, I kind of touched on the lyrics of the Lake and the River <laughs> earlier, um, and, and that point still stands. I don't really need to reiterate it too much. But um, I, Nick, would you say it's fair to say that uh, this this song is like uh, Hunter's kind of last hurrah in the Lake and the River before he heads off to the city? And this is almost like him saying goodbye to that life? Yeah, so how I see it is, um, like the procession was obviously like uh, his, his mother passing away. He's like holding a, the whole funeral thing for her. 
Um, and I think story-wise, like going with the the CD booklet and the graphic novel, this is where he's like walking away from his home. He's like passing by the tree, going towards the the train tracks and stuff. And so this, all the lyrics in this song are basically just um, what is going on inside of his head as he's reflecting on Act One and ever the events of the procession. And it's kind of just how he's processing everything that's happened so far. Because um, even with like, at one point in the song, it goes like left, right, left, right. I think that's very directly just like him focusing on his footsteps in front I of thought, him. I thought it was him looking left and right at the fork in the road. I'm pr- I think it was actually in the comic book too. Could be both. Where he was looking left to right in the directions. Well, I, th- I think even Nick mentioned oh, that in their fuck. review uh, about uh, Hunter trying to decide which way to go to get to, get to the city. Um, it's actually a callback to 1878. Which has happened. <laughs> I think Steve died. Thank goodness. We can continue this episode unfettered. Know. Craig can take his place. Get rid of me. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm inevitable. <laughs> ah, damn. Uh, That's right. We, we, we've seen recently what happens to people who think they're inevitable. So <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's an endgame spoiler right there. I think I've just lost half the audience. There's a two-week rule. Don't worry. We're talking about Icarus. Yeah, no, I what about my comic book? So uh, this one, this one gets lucky for you, Nick. But uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, it was looking left and right in the road. It could be both. It could have honestly. What we were discussing is that um, Casey could have also done kind of like how I used to write lyrics, where uh, you write line by line until it starts to mean something. And he did that Act One and Act Two kind of more had an overarching theme, but he still kind of stuck with that kind mm-hmm. of concept. Um. So that could have had multiple interpretations and Casey really just sat back on it and could have thought like, Oh, maybe this is what I choose for it to mean. Yeah. That's basically what I did. I was like, well, that's the only thing I can think of that left, right would mean. So I just kind of pulled that out of my ass. Ah, so there is some subjectivity. Isn't there Nick, Nicky boy. (laughs) (laughs) Steve's just got, got to make sure everyone knows he's right. I, I, I said that lightly. Oh, I love throwing jabs. This is my pastime. Well, let's, um, before we move on from the songs again, I don't want to spend too much time on every song. What do you guys interpret about the whole, the Icarus thing that kind of keeps popping up? I mean, obviously we can take it at face value and say it's just kind of Hunter's apprehension uh, about perhaps if he's too ambitious, he'll, he'll fail. Uh, but do, do you think there's anything deeper to the, the whole, cause in, in the song, it pretty much directly uh, references Icarus. It's uh, well, euphorically floating upon wax wings. Where's the sun? Well, let's uh, let's just take it back a second. Uh, for the people who aren't familiar with the Greek literature, uh, for whatever reason, uh, Icarus is a story about, uh, if I'm recalling it correctly, uh, the young boy Icarus is uh, ha- is given wings that are held to his back with wax, and his father said, "You can." F- it was was it Perseus? I think his father was. Oh, I'm not that deep into it. I pretty much I- just listen up. I listen to Iron Maiden, so I know all this from Kid Icarus. <laughs> I, so. I can't, I can't remember that well, but I, I do remember that um, his father basically <laughs> said to Icarus, "You can fly wherever you want to fly, but however, don't fly too close to the sun." And Icarus uh, ignored him completely. He flew. He kept flying around, and he was marvelled by the ability of flying. You know, as anyone would be, he flew too close to the sun, where the sun melted the wax on his wings, where then he fell to his death. Oh, and I believe right. he drowns so it's, it's kind too. of a, a story about just that just to add in so it was an injury I mean I oh, feel yeah, like if he I'm fell sure he from does. that height and the second he'd hit the water his bones would just shatter well because so. I, I think I think the way the story I think the way the story goes is that he cannot he cannot fly mm-hmm. either too high or too low because if he flies too high of course the wax is going to melt if he flies too low the water will uh, in some way 
you know, reduce the adherence of those wings to his back. So I, I think it's kind of a, a double story about uh, not being too ambitious, lest you bite off more than you can chew and end up falling on your face, but also not, uh, you know, aiming too low. You know, it's, it's kind of trying to find that medium of not doing more than you're capable balance. of, but acknowledging your own Next capability. Next thing I know, you're falling into a river and you're drowning. <laughs> yeah, so, so this the is just a story exactly. vigorous thing. Um, <laughs> I do want to point out, though, that it says, where is the sun? Uh, sun has a few meanings Could be blinded by his own ambitions. Where is the sun? Kind of not seeing beyond his own self. Are you thinking it's like a, uh, a homophone thing where it's like it could be either sun as in, you know, the, the ball of fire in the sky or sun as in like an actual eternal sun? Yes. It's interesting. Uh, you were born with the moon and you will, or you're born with the sun and you will die with the moon. Uh, if he was born with the sun, the sun is also a song in act three for a character. Uh, I'm thinking it might be twins or something. I don't know. I mean, that's just uh, that's just my hot take. Because die with the moon obviously does mean something. Yeah, I, I have I have uh, big problems with Act Three storytelling that Steve and I will no doubt argue about endlessly on on the next episode. See so that that's why I didn't want to go yeah. on Act Three because I I probably would also have some. Actually, there's there's two confusion. songs in the Hunter discography that I think are just com- almost complete nonsense in in how they relate to the story. Uh, one is one of them the Poison Woman. One of them's Poison Woman. Um, the other Thank one you. is actually Black Sandy Beaches, which we'll actually get to talk about this episode. So, oh, I, I love that. I want to talk about. So that. We'll, we'll get to it eventually. But um, did you did you guys have any interpretations <laughs> of the Icarus story? Do you think it's just literally him being afraid of his own ambition, or do you think there's maybe I, a, I more? Think, of a story I think it's metaphor. There? Casey likes bathing his lyrics in metaphor. So I, I feel like at this point, Casey may not have had too much of a grasp on uh, more of just kind of the objective linearity of the story. And all the extra sprinkles on top are kind of like you know. Oh, what a what a massive coincidence! I totally intended to do that. So that's my that's my thing. Well, yeah. At that point, I feel like we've uh, basically summed up the procession. Uh, Miss Terry dies, and then uh, the lake and the river is Hunter basically just uh, saying goodbye to his old life. Like this is um, you know at the end of the sitcom, him turning out the lights as he reflects on everything that happened there, and then he's moving to the unknown, uh, which is where we get into the oracles of uh, the Delphi Express, which. Uh, I think one of you guys should take that one because it's a really interesting song. Can I actually put in two things really quick about the Lake Nerva before we move on? No, you're not allowed. Put in, th- put in three things. Three things. Okay, I'll try and find right another one. Um, <laughs> at one point, he said, transfixed like a light in front of me. Uh, it follows my soul and swallows me whole. Um, throughout the story... He talks about uh, a source of light at various points, and it changes what that point is, uh, but it's sort of like his motivation that drives him to go forward. And I think in this song, it's referring to his mother passing away and him trying to find the direction. So that's the light in front of him. Uh, and, and you see that uh, the word light pop up quite a few more times. In and I story. think that also lends to, we had to step back a little bit to, I believe it's the procession where there's the one life for another repeatedly, Eric. Uh Yeah. I, I think this kind of lends to that too, which is, you know, how, how do we interpret that lyric? And I think I maybe piggybacked on you a little bit for this interpretation, but perhaps one life for another is literally Miss Terry had to die in order for Hunter's life uh, as, as an adult to begin. I actually said in my procession analysis that um, I don't actually know what the lyrics are, but I think that there's three different interpretations of one life for another. Um, Cause it could be one lie 
for another, or it could be one life for another, or it could be one life or another. This and all three of those have story meanings. Yeah, this this all sounds them. exactly the same to me. <laughs> there, there's way there's way too many posts in this group about just one life for another, and I'm just... I have them all written down in the analysis. If you want to look at all the, the three different like spellings and how they could mean oh, different yeah, things, yeah. Def- like, as you're listening important. to this episode, assuming anyone's made it this far in, in our rambling nonsense, but definitely go check out Nick's blog and kind of use that to supplement uh, the the way we're interpreting the story and how you kind of read it yourself. Because like I said, there's a lot more detail there that we don't necessarily have time to get into here, but we want to touch on some of the finer elements and the, the general story beats. So if you need objectivity, I have the all the acts on CD. So yeah. Wait, you have them all on CD? Well, I have them all on vinyl coming here in like a oh, week or two. Oh, I have two. them all on vinyl. Look at you. See, I haven't been able to get my hand on an act, act one CD. Coming in a week or Jesus. two. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I I bought the box the box set as well to uh, to give away in the group a little subtle plug there, but I give you know, away. I have, I have them on CD, so uh, if you need objectivity to the lyrics, if something doesn't seem right, I can go grab them. Well, Casey even said that half the liner notes are wrong. Yeah, the look so. South. <laughs> yeah, they they did a, a, a misprint there with with the uh, spelling, didn't they? It is never anyway, truly. Uh, did you guys want to? It's never truly dear hunter merch without some kind of misspelling. Honestly, if it's not misspelled, I'll send it back. Did you guys want to touch on? Uh, the the previous songs anymore or do you want to move on to the oracles of delphi express because like i said we... i did have one more thing to say about like sure yeah it actually it goes into the oracles it's about the little transition piece absolutely um so it starts with like the acoustic guitar and like these guys singing over it and it slowly like accelerates i think it is so cool how he uses the instrumentation to emulate the sounds of a train oh yeah i totally i was gonna mention that i even have a note about it and i totally forgot yeah no it's because he does it like other points in the story also like with the tank and then like the footsteps going into the drums and mr usher i i i was trying to like wrap my head around like how he conceived of how to because i mean if you listen to it in in like knowing that's supposed to represent the train sounds or like um yeah, the the sounds of railroad workers or something like that. Like he does, he if you listen to it, knowing that, like it is so accurate to to tell that part of the story. It almost makes you wonder how much he agonized over making sure that sounds exactly the way it does. Yeah, because you can even like going with a song, you can like hear the like chugga chugga like slowly accelerate in that part of the song. I could hear it in Hunter's mic too. The chugga chugga. Oh, oh. yes, because I live next to a train tracks. Man, even that one went over my head. I didn't get it. Yeah, I live next to train tracks, so in like all the episodes, if you listen hard and intently, you can hear a train passing by every once in a while. I think a car alarm went off like half an hour ago, like at my place too, so you might be able to hear that. Yeah, so go rewind and find find the car alarm. If you can find us the timestamp for the car alarm, <laughs> you get a free uh, prize. Is, is the prize me just doing... Yeah. Are you clapping? Is that what you're I hope he's a, clapping. A, th- a yeah. thermo cover? Yeah, speaking of which, my thermovocal cover is still absolute fire. Check it out. Yeah. Yes, you did a, a therm of vocal cover. <laughs> that was you? <laughs> that, that was me, my, my old place. I, see, I watched that. Didn't know it was you. So yeah, as as Nick was mentioning, the, the I, I got to keep refocusing us because we all just want to sit here and talk. <laughs> but, uh, the, the the transition piece of uh, Into the Oracle's Delphi Express, uh, you, you hear the, the train kind of making up speed, uh, and even at the end, you hear like it blowing the whistle. straight into the oracles which is a very kind of jazzy uh introduction piece for these new characters which we kind of briefly touched on the oracles earlier but did one of you guys kind of want to break down what the oracles represent consciousness that's what i'm saying his conscience elaborate on that a little bit 
That's what I said too. Um, so a conscience is, uh, I, I understand. <laughs> I, I may seem like a sociopath, but I understand what a conscience is. Um, I, I view it like, uh, I view it like, oh, let me pull up the lyrics for that. Cause we were, we were jumping around lyrics quite a bit. So stick with us, throw your morals out the door. Um, it's kind of hunter's devil on his shoulder being his kind of guiding hand, or I guess more, I don't know if it'd be the devil or the angel. Cause hunter is, bo- is not really a good guy. Even Casey said that he's like. He's not. There's not a single good thing that he's ever done. Yeah, there's a theme with people being named Hunter being total piece of shit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm he I'm very like a Hunter kind of being on the train. Him seeing the quote unquote oracles. I did air quotes even though I'm on audio for some reason. Um, where he's going over to the city, but there's kind of that like inner tugging feeling, kind of just pulling him back, saying. It's new. It's unfamiliar. You won't be safe there. Come back with us. We'll, we'll hug you. We'll give you some cookies. Here, come hang out. Chill for a bit. You know, you don't need to leave. And then the hunter's just kind of like, nah, screw that. And he's going over to the city. So you guys don't interpret the oracles as being uh, actual things, like uh, like See, these crumbs. Actually, just now I came up with a new interpretation in my head. If I could, Oh, like, fantastic. We're, we're previewing it here uh, exclusively on the like Operation Podcast. Uh, so I imagine hunters like getting on the train... And he sits and there's like a bunch of older people around him and they're all just seem like some weird ass crones because he's never like seen people before. Um, and so like this old person sees this kid like on a train that doesn't really know where he's going. And he's like, oh, so what are you doing? Where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to the city. And like everyone around him is just like, yeah, you have no idea what you're doing. In the comic uh, book, this uh, I don't have it on me and I'm kind of really fucking pissed off because I was just looking at it yesterday. Uh, I actually haven't read the comic book. I'm so, I'm so in, in the comic here. book. Uh, I'm remembering the panel. If I'm recalling correctly, the oracles are portrayed as a bunch of normal people. Um, they all just kind of looked like the kind of average Joes for the time, just kind of sitting around and just like talking to Hunter and uh, Hunter's alone with them in the cart. And this is like an old school kind of like Red Dead Redemption Two kind of like train cart where it's mm-hmm. like a cargo box and he's sitting there in like that wooden kind of crate just talking to them. So it's not he doesn't look he isn't looking at them like old crones or anything like that. I don't think that Hunter is at a point where he's because he's seen other yeah. people like we discussed in the last episode. He saw the future version of himself, so he knows what mm-hmm. people look like, and I'm sure he understands enough to differentiate people. I don't think he sees them as crones. Um, I think that it might be his mind kind of playing tricks, like projecting just a bunch of random faces in front of him, and it's just kind of him stuck in his head but the way the conch portrays is it portrays like they're actual people i guess i misspoke a little bit they're like they're a little bit younger and older there's like a good variety of just like men women old God, young fuck are my comic like, books kind of weird looking kind of normal looking i'm wondering what you guys think of how these oracles are somehow able to uh predict hunter's future so especially in the second verse where it says things like don't be ashamed of your amorphopa and when the bombs go off, you'll know right where you are, which is obviously foreshadowing Act Three. So, bearing in mind there's no, there's there's no uh, supernatural element. I'm I'm wondering how. Well, I'm going to fall back on my earlier kind of fan theory that I've just very very recently developed. So it's it's an infant. So be nice to it. But uh, I I think that Acts One through Three may not be an actual. Uh, live series of events I, I really think all of this is hunter um either telling the story to someone or perhaps going through uh 
you know, a drug-addled type of self-reflection or something like that. And and this is almost like you guys said that it was his conscience. I, th- I think kind of playing on that a little bit. This is this is him looking at his life and uh, developing these characters as a way to detach himself from uh, how he experienced it. You know, almost like to to be retrospective. Like he created these characters almost as his his knowledge that he has now to. Like, if he could go back and tell himself something, what would he tell him? So I, I, I don't think that the oracles are real, um, particularly with, you know, there being no supernatural elements. Uh, I, I think Acts 1, two, 1 through 3 may all just be a, a kind of drug-addled hallucination or, you know, deep reflection or Wait, something. You don't think he went to war? No, I think he went to war, but I think the way he tells the story isn't... Um, it's not a series of events. It's a series of thoughts reflecting on the events, which, you know, as we, as we all know, human memory is, is pretty inaccurate. Um, so I think that when we see acts one through three happening, it's not the events happening in real time. It's him reflecting on the events. And so we do get kind of this distorted perspective on it. And we have these, uh, added elements that are kind of his, uh, retrospective interpretation. That's interesting. I've never I, considered I think that. that. I think that's what the oracles kind of embody. Hmm. Casey stated in one of the story time answers, uh, he said that the oracles are not ghosts, but constants, and that they always have been and never was. Um, so I think that is further just saying that they're, they're not really like, like there. They're just kind of like a figment of his imagination, or at least they're just like a narration tool that Casey's using. Yeah, and, and Casey does kind of use some, not cheats, but some some quick outs when it comes to storytelling. Like we have the the uh, omniscient narrators of uh, the oracles, and then like in Act 3 we have the MacGuffin of um, the Poison Woman, which of course I don't want to get into at the moment, but uh, it, it might just be that <laughs> things needed to happen, and so we just created a way for those things to happen. It's, it's really tough to say, but I, I, I think I'm sticking with my theory that Acts 1 through 3 are all like, retrospection and that they're not literally well, happening Nick, that was time. fucking brilliant what you just said uh i don't want to gloss over that i've already forgot what i said when you said how they um re- referring to ref- the way you were referring to the oracles i i think casey they, they are narrative tools you know like they they aren't i don't mm-hmm. view them as anything more than that i just think that casey maybe couldn't figure out a way to properly do it or maybe he just kind of wanted to start laying down the groundwork for something acapella because this is pretty much like a really acapella song uh similar to batesimo maybe he's wanted to do something else kind of like that i think that the oracles like as if, if we're talking about the like narrative tools i think the oracles are singing all the acapella yeah intros. that's i think that's pretty much canon yeah well that that's the interpretation i've heard too and i think that the reason we didn't get an acapella intro in act two is because uh we had the oracles like just a few songs into the album mm. yeah i guess they hadn't quite been introduced to that point yeah how, how are the you guys kind of mentioned how the oracles are handled in in the act two comic does anyone have it in front of them is there any clues that perhaps this is a i think it's like two feet from me i can go grab it steve steve's off doing what steve does he's looking for shit i, know I have exactly no where idea where i put them and i am so upset because i had those in my killjoy comics and ugh. yeah i i didn't get the act two comic uh i, I know bob uh, the, the the pencil artist for this, he he offered me um, actually a couple of free copies, one signed to give away in the group, and then one just for, for personal use. 
Um, I actually I haven't taken him up on that, but I need to at some point so I can kind of dive into this with the same level of interest I did with Act One because Act One, like on our episode, I did use the the comic book pretty heavily. And there's a lot of interpretations that can be taken from how it relates to the music. Okay, I got mine in front of me here. I was kind of AFK. I don't know if you guys were talking about anything important. Uh, we never do. Okay. <laughs> cool. So I, I guess, uh, are there any visual clues? Because I, I think at this point, this would be Casey's opportunity to start planting the seeds that this is all. I mean, if my theory is, is in any way true, which, of course, I want to believe in my own brilliance and think that it is. Uh, this may be Casey's way of dropping subtle hints that perhaps the oracles aren't uh, as, as they're being presented. I think I'm actually going to double down with a theory I had the other, like before, where it's like these are just a bunch of normal people and they're just kind of amused with the fact that this kid, like, thinks he's going to go make a life for himself in the city. Because it makes it look like they're all just kind of like circled around him, like, just amused, really. But anyway, story wise, because it's so hard to kind of uh, keep up with where the story is when we go by the song, song by song analysis. Uh, you know, Hunter's left the lake in the river. This is him actually taking the train to the city, which is where. Uh, Miss Terry initially escaped in Act 1. This is where the Church of the Dime is. And this is where, as far as I can tell, the, mo- the closest congregation of civilization. So, um, at the end of this song, this is where Hunter gets to the city. Uh, did you guys want to go into the next song and what happens there? Or did you have some more things on oracles? Uh, let- no, let's do it, I think. Yeah, let's do it. I've been really excited to get to the Church of the Dime because this is one of my favorite Ooh, songs. Church of the Dime. Uh, Church of the Dime. Casey screams in it. It's amazing. It. So yeah, at the at the end of Oracles, we get this kind of uh, <laughs> this acoustic. Well, it's it's an outro for Oracles, but basically an intro to the Church and the Dime, and it just the way this this song builds up uh, its lines and the way it, it it plays with with all the different parts of the song. I just I I really think this is masterful kind of uh, songwriting. I really really love this song. But basically, this is Hunter uh, getting to the Church in the Dime, which is the place Miss Terry escaped from in Act 1. Uh, now, I'm not sure, does the comic kind of expound upon how he gets there or with whom he's speaking when he gets there? I think it's just him being on the train and then he gets to the town. Basically, it has him say that he ditched the oracles. Uh, basically, he gets off the train, says like, okay, forget the oracles. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. And then he's looking at the city and that's the end of the, the graphic novel. Damn, okay, so we're flying blind here. Uh, we have the CD booklet, but that's, like, not super sure. accurate. Well, I mean, I, I guess maybe the detail of what happens after he gets off the train isn't so important, but he does end up at the Church on the Dime, and this is uh, our kind of Hunter's introduction to to the location, and it's it's really interesting that the, the tone the song takes is very kind of uh, somber and less, like, bombastic like we usually see the the church and the dime represented. I mean, does anyone else have any interpretations about that? why this song kind of portrays that location a bit differently than it has been before and will be in the future? Uh, somber? Yeah, well, I mean, the, just the kind of the tone of the song. Like whenever we hear uh, the church and the dime referenced or the pimp and the priest, there's this very like bombastic kind of jazzy, almost upbeat tone to it. Cool. And this is... Let me, let me give you some perspective. Uh you sure you lived in let's say you're living in some some really small 
three-person population town in Ohio somewhere, right? I am, your, but okay. Your entire <laughs> life, you've never been to even a Starbucks to upload your stems, ever. And then you leave the town, you encounter a bunch of talking old people on a train trying to tell you how to live your life, and the first thing you see when you get off the train into this massive new city is a brothel. It's going to kind of alter your perspective because this one's being told from Hunter's perspective. This isn't really a narrative, like a, an omniscient kind of perspective, like the narrator telling it. It's more like Hunter arrives at the church in the dime. He sees these really sleazy fucking people and some asshole in the back with a pig mask. And he's like, he just sees all these girls dancing, putting themselves on display and just kind of showing themselves off as like products to all these people there. Kind of also a bit, I would say, as imagery for how Casey felt with his ex that this album was loosely based on. Um, he's kind of like the characters looking through, looking at all this and he's just seeing that he sees just this display that seems so vile yet unanimously accepted by everyone there and being the place that his mother worked it kind of i guess puts things a little bit into perspective too but it's it's tonally weird because the rest of the album is basically basically seen through because hunter is so ignorant and naive that he doesn't he doesn't even know what a prostitute is really he doesn't know what a brothel is he doesn't really know anything and yet uh, kind of the the tone of the song is is one. I, I mean, even as you're describing it, it's very kind of a depressing atmosphere. But all of that is with the context of what it is to people who already know what it is. Like, it's just weird that that Hunter, knowing nothing, would would approach this place and see it as uh, terrible. Especially since every time, other time we have it portrayed as very like kind of big and exciting, and there's a lot of partying. And it's I don't know, Nick. What, how did you interpret this song when you did your analysis? Uh, I had a totally different interpretation interpretation um so in the graphic novel when he like gets off the train it's like nighttime um and then in the cd booklet it starts with him approaching the church first because they're like nearby but not the same sure but they're like they're like jason uh, to each other. and in the i don't know off the top of my head i can try and like find something for it but basically he like sees the church first he sees the established in 1878 thing on it um and then he's like walking next to it sort of or like down it or like in it or something and that's when he sees like misleading in the next song and so i interpreted this as him just kind of like seeing the church and he hasn't quite seen the brothel yet but this is sort of like a narrative of just introducing what the church and the dime themselves are because we i don't really even think we got that in act one it was mostly just exposition for uh, the character of the pimp and the priest, not the actual locations. See the way I the way I was looking at it is like because Hunter, you're saying it's like a very um, somber tone to it, but yeah, not only in the the way the music is, but the lyrics too. Keep right, but right after, but right after the um, right after that acoustic acapella sounding uh, Oracle's the Delphi Express, you're hit with a wall of noise. Like, this way it starts off is him opening the door and just being blasted with all this shit, and sure. as he's looking in, he's kind of kind of able to process what's going on as he's looking around the place it's not and as he's looking around it's just kind of like what the fuck's going on my mom's not here anymore uh what why am i being thrown into this kind of situation it's just so foreign to him and then 
you go to I'm not jumping ahead, but then com- contrasting with the bittersweet one where he's uh, where he's meeting misleading and then going through the dime. That's more of that kind of like oh look at this look at all this stuff kind of going on. He's kind of like breathing in a bit more. But this song I think is just more kind of being hit in the face of a bit more of reality. I guess the the reason why it confuses me is because like um, the whole thing with Hunter and misleading is that he misinterprets what her profession is. Like he he doesn't really understand. What, what a prostitute does uh, or anything like that. And I think that's that's where a lot of his resentment and anger with the situation comes from and why he is able to get in this relationship and fall in love with someone who uh, is, in this, is in this line of work. So I guess starting out with him being introduced to this place and already having this tone of... I mean, if you read the lyrics, it's basically... It's representing this whole place as, as being depressing. And like uh, the, the call girls, the prostitutes uh, are, are kind of portrayed in... You know how sad is it that they're doing this, but it's almost weird because Hunter doesn't know that. So, do we know for a fact this is from Hunter's perspective? I don't think it is. Um, but also, I want to say that he has no idea what his mom did. Yeah, and that too. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't put that together until Red Hands. So he he has no understanding of like how this relates to his mom or that she even worked here. Really? Yes, that, that's that's why it would be true. weird. Because I mean, that's the whole that's the whole thing about misleading is that he. He can see parallels misleading to his mother, but he doesn't know what his mother did because he was so protected, and that's why all this happens. It's because he was so protected, and he doesn't know anything. But then you also do have the dichotomy. You have the dichotomy too of um, a somber verses, and then him kind of screaming it out in the choruses. Like he's still kind of processing death as he's seeing everything going on. I think the the somber tone is also supposed to be a sort of like a like an underground sinister vibe to go with the song as far as like the tone goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rue, you know, theory does, does the, uh, does the progression, the modes that they play in, does that usually attribute to more of the somber tone or the sinister kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, is it with this or this? Well, yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I guess you could talk about the main progression, which is kind of this A minor to like this D minor, which then kind of goes up to like this D dominant kind of thing. Uh, which, when you're at this point, you're in kind of the Dorian mode, which in in general is kind of used. It can be used for that kind of that kind of creeping up like, like the kind of James Bondy almost you know I was gonna say it sounded Dorian but I wasn't for sure it just like had the vibe of it because it's like it's minor obviously but yeah. it's not like a it's depressing dark. sort of yeah, minor it, it's yeah I think that's, it's just that's why like, somber I think is the best thing to describe yeah, it because it's not necessarily like somber, yeah. it's kind of got the same I don't know what the adjective would be I, I, I don't quite have that in my vocabulary. Dorian. <laughs> Dorian's Dorian. Dorian. <laughs> but that, That's how I describe sounds now. Like, oh, that sounds Lydian. But like I said, it's like the, uh, it's, it's like that James Bond kind of theme, you know? The, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's all about discovery and it's all about... I guess if I had, if, if someone put a gun to my head and made me say what the song was, I, I think kind of with the things we've talked discussed here, I think this is more 
aimed it at us as the listener. Like it's it's establishing this location to us because even in the, it's literally called the Church in the Dime too. Yeah, I mean, of course, we we saw it a little bit in Act yeah. One, but I think this song is is more for us. So the the kind of somber tone isn't necessarily Hunter's feelings or reflective of how it's going to affect him immediately, but it's more telling us like this is this is kind of a dark place. There's going to be some shit going down after this, which is, is kind of like a, a stop for the, the the storytelling. Like it's almost um, it's it's doing a record scratch when Hunter gets there and then saying, okay, this is where Hunter is. This is the kind of place he is. Are we just going to keep doing that fucking him. record scratch meme? Is, yeah, we need to find a we need to find a sound effect and just add an obnoxious record scratch every time we mention it. <laughs> That's going to be the new drinking game. Take a take a shot every time we mention a record scratch. Well, because as as a storytelling element goes, I mean it's it's an exaggerated uh, representation of a very common storytelling element when it comes to literature and, and, and kind of these um, more artistic expressions like like musicals and plays and stuff, where there kind of is sometimes a stopgap between where the story is and and how you need to introduce the new set piece to the, the listener or the reader or the watcher so i think this is kind of what that is yeah it's called the frame narrative like, course, where it starts off kind of towards the end and then it goes back to the beginning establishing it before it catches you back up right yeah so i think this is an introduction introduction of us to the church and dime and then the next song is is where hunter enters and of course it's the bittersweets so this is hunter meeting misleading it's almost like he walks in there and he's like struck by her and just to discuss the title, because we know Casey loves, loves, loves his wordplay. And just to be clear, we're going to the bittersweet. Uh, yeah, we're I mean, on. unless anyone has else? anything to add about Church and Dime. Um, the Dime's name could also be talking about money or um, them all being dimes. All the girls that I would say it's a little on the nose. Are you snapping by the way? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I think the dime, the reason it got its name is because of the, the circular window. I, um, I have no I guess clue. Could, I just pulled both those out of my ass right now. I mean, that's, that's basically what we do all the time anyway. But, all right. Uh, I Great. mean, for the, for the listeners, we definitely know what we're talking about. Absolutely. Bitter sweet. We're moving on to the bittersweet before All it right. goes down. Go <laughs> we're, we're an hour into this. Let's let's probably move on after the fourth song because differences. We spend an hour on the Batissimo. We don't want to spend an hour on four songs out of what twelve songs, fourteen songs on this album. Fifteen. Fifteen. Fuck's sake. All e- right. Every episode from here on out is gonna be ten hours long. God damn! Imagine when we do the color spectrum <laughs> if we actually went to this detail. So this is how it could be applied to the axe. <laughs> Um, okay, so the bitter, the bitter sweet, sweet. Where we are in the story is Hunter enters the dime. Let's just, well, let's establish the uh, let's establish first uh, the title. Uh, Casey loves his fucking wordplay. The bittersweet. Do you think it could be alluding anything to the story? Maybe the emotions that Hunter is feeling at this point in the story, or is it more of just kind of Casey being like, "Hey, that's clever." Oh, I thought he just misspelled it. Yeah, it was it was just a typo, and he forgot to correct it. That's a pretty insane typo. This is like before autocorrect. <laughs> Those damn liner notes. No, I think um, when we when you look at musical terms, what a suite is, or not even musical terms, just storytelling terms, a suite is um, basically a, a collection, a narrative collection, or a musical collection of things that all kind of tie together. Or a room. Um, and so it, it could be a rug, like a no, room to go. Who knows? A room. Like, 
Yeah, I thought it was like a hotel room. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that too, room. but... Like, yeah, yeah, can I, I be mean, sweet? That, like, a, your, that's a different representation of the word suite. Your orchestration suite, your orchestral suites, but also could be referring to a room, like a room in the dime. Uh, perhaps? I don't know. I, I took it more as, like, it, it's setting up a series of of songs that's almost hella isolated story. Like, I, I've never really listened to the Bittersweets 1 through 6, I think it is. Like, back to back to back, but... I mean, sweets, as they're usually represented in music, are kind of um, contained elements. That makes a lot more sense than having it be a room. That went way over my head. <laughs> I literally, one of my favorite comics is called The Apocalypse Suite, which is literally referring to a, a suite of music that could destroy the world. But anyway, that makes much more sense than me thinking about it's just a bunch of rooms. <laughs> Just Hunter playing musical chairs over the course of like five years. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could be completely wrong, but I, you know, I, I do have a, a history in kind of uh, large orchestras and stuff like that, and we've we've played plenty of suites. Like, uh, like the Nutcracker is a suite, and and the way kind of uh, the stories play together are, are, are kind of a contained uh, thematic elements. And I, I think if you look at all the bittersweet songs, like we, can, of course, we can't jump forward all the way to Act Four, but they all kind of. Uh, tell the same type of story like there's no bittersweet about you know uh, just being in the city all the bittersweets kind of reference the church and the dime in some way or the pimp and the priest like it seems like this is a little self-contained story within the story like it's establishing that this is an element that's separated but important uh i think there's like a structure to each of the like one two and three very directly parallel four five and six. Oh, definitely and one thing that to also note is that uh one and two have very contrasting tones to it that you can easily tell when it switches from Bittersweet 1 to Bittersweet 2, just like mm-hmm. you can tell when it switches right. from Bittersweet 4 to Bittersweet 5. And it's very obvious to the listener, but it's still very cohesive in nature to it. And I think that that's really smart in how Casey, if he intentionally built the narrative that way, I think it's really smart and also keeping it to be a very digestible song. Uh, uh, in 1 and 4, he's both like kind of getting an introduction to a character like he's already met the priest, obviously in four, but it's like he's meeting him as the, the priest now. Um, so he's like meeting these two characters, and then the second half of like those first like two and five, are more of like, um, like the setting. Like one is the dime, one is the church, and then in three and six he gets fucked. Yeah, he does. Absolutely and utterly based. Oh my god. I think I my my internet cut out at the most inopportune moment because suddenly everyone's celebrating something that I completely they did missed. the fricking. Oh frick. yes, they they did they did the bang. Oh, should I not be swearing? No, I'm. I, oh I, no, I start off the episode with just dropping fuck. If you didn't swear, if you didn't swear, we would just start censoring random words to pretend you are. Yeah, so Hunter went to the. <laughs> okay, we might cool. just do that we're just gonna cut random words and just you, can do, you can do that also censor bleeps no, we're gonna podcast, bleep every word that's not a cuss word the podcast is actually labeled as explicit so we can curse for that reason <laughs> yeah because it, yeah. I, can, I can't I can go by like 20 minutes without dropping an F-bomb or S-bomb oh, or V-bomb or Q-bomb or whatever I probably could I just wasn't yeah. thinking well, about to, it well to recenter us a little bit because we're, we're running a little bit low on time we only got about half an hour left um, the, the bittersweet one and two are I think kind of the most purest the most purest wow i'm so educated uh but the 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 purest representation of emotions in this album because it it really is a very uh i mean it's 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 an an anthemic love story like just the way that the that the story plays out is just very sweet i mean it's just it's a very 
very beautiful music and it really kind of represents how much hunter adores this person it's a direct contrast i think because that from hunter's point of view this is two people falling in love with each other but you've got to remember that that hunter is just another customer to misleading so it it shows just how seductive and how manipulative misleading is able to be to hunter in all of his naivety um i i i think so misleading when she saw hunter she saw the naivety in his face do you think that was intentional though she kind of like going before we cut to when they did the um misleading kind of see she sees something pure and blissfully ignorant about hunter to the world and while he might be just another yeah but but while he might be another client i think she may viewed she may have viewed him as more (laughs) and easy target that's a way to put it but um i I think i think that there while it was a a job for her uh, i do think that there may have been more underlying emotions that existed there beyond it just being a client that she needed to fulfill a contract for i disagree well do we have no, I, I totally disagree. I, I think misleading never really saw Hunter as anything more than just a customer, and Hunter being Hunter just couldn't ooh, see it. Uh, couldn't see it objectively. I don't know about it's that. Just some lava Evicted takes. is from her point of view, and it's all about how she has attachment to him. Mm, I, I, I think only as as an easy way to make money, or as an easy way to, you know. Well, in that, I think that that kind of yeah, he's taking the New Yorker perspective. That, that kind of gets into um, you know how she approaches her job. Like she she may see Hunter as unique and special, in that he's he is uncorrupted. Like Hunter is uh, the way he comes into the the city, which it's always represented as like this place of kind of uh, you know there's there's a lot of craziness going on. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of just uh, impurity. And then Hunter comes in, this this fresh pair of eyes. He doesn't know anything about the world. He's innocent. He's pure. And I think maybe that struck her as being particularly special. But at the same time, she is a professional. She's done this for a while. So I, I think it could be both. I think she can be taken and intrigued with him without necessarily um, separating it from her work. In the CD booklet, they actually specifically say that she does not take Hunter's money when he tries to sleep with her. Maybe it's a freebie. Try before you buy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a used car jesus fucking christ <laughs> now he he pulled a podrick pain god i want i want rue to be like the number one salesman in the fucking world i just want i just want to see him travel just with this mentality nick what were you trying to put in there uh about what I don't know. I thought I heard you uh, in, in putting something. Sorry, I have a ton of noise going on. I said he just... has. When you said he's like a used car, I said he's well, he's not even used. He's like a new car. Right. Vroom, vroom. I don't know. I guess um, since the bittersweet is told from Hunter's point of view, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to trust Nick's interpretation on this and say that mis- misleading does have some sort of special feelings for Hunter. But is it like why? Like what? What about the situation really lended to the to that being the conclusion? Uh, yeah, this is what I mean. I just don't think there's anything there. Well, he obviously gravitates towards her because of like the relation to his mom, um, mm. and I think she gravitates mm. towards him because he is so contrasting to every other man that she meets in her line of work. She's uh, matriarchal. Yeah, That's I, the I way think... they described her in the story. He views her as matriarchal, 
Oedipal complex. This is before she goes full pedophile on him. Well, we don't know how old she is. That, 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 that is fair, too. That makes it worse. Well, I mean, the, the whole thing about this, eh. the, the, the themes of this story are kind of dark. Like, I mean, on, on the whole, I mean, I'm not saying that prostitution is a, is, as a profession is anything you know, disgraceful or anything like that. But, I mean, when we look at the context of the city, I in no way think that their level of sex work is done in a, more ethical way ethical way yeah i mean <laughs> it, it may be that maybe miss uh, misleading was tapped at a young age to be maybe she is hunter's age maybe she's 13 14 and she's still uh, she was tapped well <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm not even gonna correct myself this is I, a I fucking think I amazing episode oh my god <laughs> <laughs> well we we've we've really got to get moving uh because yeah. I, I know the, the bittersweets we can all uh, kind of lumped together. What, how does Bitter Sweet Three kind of contrast with One and Two? Like, what, what was your interpretation of that one? The lyrics. Oh my God, those are fucking fantastic lyrics in the Bitter Sweet Three. That's the first thing I noticed. I. I said this, I think, in Act One's episode where I listened to the acts in my uh, my human nutrition class because I'm a very good student, <laughs> and um, I was reading with the lyrics and analyzing it because the way these stories told, you can't just read the lyrics and get your interpretation. Um, you have to listen to it with the music, and you need to hear the delivery of it, and the way they delivered when they're actually uh, fricking. When he says, uh, we fall beneath to the sea in the, we fall beneath the sea in the back of our hearts and fail to breathe until we resurface again. That's like kind of where the song blooms and Hunter's like, wow, this is, this, this sex stuff is pretty damn cool. And I'm getting feelings I'm actually, too. The song blooms. I'm, I'm, re- I'm reading, uh, Nick's review here and, and they wrote, uh, the two of them fall into each other's arms and Hunter totally gets laid here. <laughs> so, and I think that really, that really wraps up the, the bittersweet three. Like it's, it's all this romantic kind of, uh, like Tommy Wiseau directed it. You know, it's very, it's re- <laughs> really focusing the, on this. the belly button fucking. <laughs> I mean, Hunter's very inexperienced. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so true. He has no experience with that. He would, I don't know if he'd know what to do. Wait, are you telling me the belly button's not where you're saying? He'd, okay, he'd just be looking. He's like, like what is this contraption? This is- My girlfriend's sitting behind me. And she's probably like, well, I mean. And that explains why he's so bad at it, because he just thinks the belly button's where it's supposed to go. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, so bittersweet one and two, Hunter falls in love with misleading. Bittersweet three is where they, they consummate their love, um, or at least their relationship to some degree, and then we can move on further from that. So, who wants to take the next one? Uh, so after they break the law, um, they go over to if I if I'm able to. Uh, yes, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. literally. Uh, we go to I the, think Steve uh, sh- Steve should take this one. Next up is the inferior smiling swine. But all the while she was still fresh in my mind. And now it might be premature. Because uh, yeah, smiling swine is is a really interesting song. It's um, the most it's... Drake Bell sounding track that the Deer Hunter has ever made, which is why they should go through with that tour instead of dropping out. Hey, that. don't diminish Drake Bell, okay? The dude's got dude's got chops. I met the guy; he's a nice dude. You met Drake really? Bell? That, I guess that's a whole other story. But yeah, he played he played at my old school. Wasn't he in some fat controversy a few years ago? He was in a bunch of fat, fat. controversies. 
Oh, nice. Fat controversies? Yeah, like fat, just heaping gigantic ones. Just just oh, oozing okay. lard. <laughs> I, thought the, I thought these were controversies concerning fatness. Sorry, I'm using a bunch of like verbiage that you're not familiar with, like whack and fat. I mean, I get it. I, I, I thought you meant P-H-A-T controversies, like they're really, really great controversies. I... No, no. I, well, well, I mean, maybe depending on like your perspective from it. Well, Drake Bell, uh, he he uh, he he did things anyway. Um, with Smiling Swine, I'm reading the lyrics. I haven't listened to this album in a good bit because right before we recorded this, I was editing another episode for the podcast. Um, so I'm thinking about this in the in the remix version. <laughs> So let, let me let me contextualize Smiling Swine. So we, we saw that in Bittersweet 3, Hunter totally got laid, as Nick so quaintly put it. Uh, and then this one is Hunter. He wakes up. Alone. Uh, he's just super fucking stoked. He gets dressed. He, he, he's skipping. He's fucking jumping down the stairs. I mean, I'm picturing in his eyes, fucking the, sh- the sun's shining bright. Everything is the best that's ever been. So this is him just in, in exaggerated, like uh, in Spider-Man 3, how... Uh, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man just has that <laughs> just that weird montage of happiness. <laughs> yeah, basically, this, this sounds picture. like I got to make an edit. But uh, no, with this track, it's um, it's a lot of uh, it, it's Hunter kind of like it's the post-sex clarity. I think is this the morning? This is the morning after, right? I that's how I'm interpreting it. Yeah, it, yeah. You, you think this is clarity? Uh, the way it's uh, that's the term that I'm using. Like the term, like after okay. you you have sex and you have just kind of that moment of that clear mind, Disgust. you know, before it gets fogged back up. <laughs> That's, I'm sorry, just the, the way we're approaching this, we sound like like four virgins, like who've never <laughs> yes, I, I heard done of the sex, sex before. before. <laughs> like, oh yes, so you put it in the belly button and then you you feel totally clear afterward. No, it's like no, but it's like that. That's what kind of viewing it's like. But anyway, he's like he's like uh, he I feels great. Like he feels he's, on he's top just of, totally um, oh, okay. Like he's just he's 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 elated. <laughs> Hunter's just, just going to talk over me. I get it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought it, I thought it was I thought it was Hunter's turn. That's, you, that's, that's no, what you I'm had just to saying do. he was. Um, I'm just saying he like he has that moment where he he's finished. He's like he's he meets this girl. He falls in love, and he's just kind of like on top of the world. And and everything that he's doing while in the church in the dime is he's just thinking about her. She's always coming back to his mind. Kind of starting. The you could say that the love arc started in the bittersweet two, uh, one, two, and three, but this is kind of like Hunter's actually in love. It's more than a feeling of lust, and this is before this is Hunter's immaturity is playing here in a sense where he's a, uh, it's still him becoming an adult, and his immaturity comes more and more into play, uh, where he realizes that maybe she's a prostitute. Blah 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 blah. Fast forwarding to the story, that she's more of um that she still has a job to do, and Hunter is just viewing this more about himself, feeling his own ego in respect yeah no, I, I think we're the, the same mind on it honestly before and then he goes and screws her belly button again well when when does that happen it's it's in his mind it's a ment- it's a mental belly button when he goes to war so let's uh let's talk about the the dialogue this is when hunter and the pimp of the priest first meet so let's have a look so hey there good day do you think it's when they when they first meet i would think so yeah as far as Hunter's aware. Yeah, they could have met before, but this is their first 
interaction with each other i would say uh, i feel like he just i feel like he sees the he sees hunter in the bar or in the uh in the brothel he doesn't really say anything lets the business get done and now he's just kind of taking advantage of his naivety he's like oh you got to kind of do shit now yeah i, I mean he, he comes pretty off the bat with this job offer to uh to obviously be misleading striver but why why does the why does the pimp and the priest give a shit like i mean to him hunter's just another kind of love-struck client like does he does he know that this is mystery's son he's got to pay his debt i think that's the way it's being viewed oh well he has the pendant oh that's mm. right okay so that so he is was that established in the story or is that strictly a comic book thing um it, it seems like it was a comic only thing i mean that would make sense because the the pendant was highlighted so much in, in act one it would make sense that it's used as a device to to show that the pimp and the priest kind of knows who hunter is and that's why he's taking particular interest in yeah, perhaps that's because I—that's the only—the only reason I could think of is why he would give a shit about Hunter is if he knows because he feels like he kind of lost with Miss Terry. Like the, the pimp of the priest never loses. He's just—he—he he runs everything. He's totally in control, and he—he he lost out on Miss Terry. So I think he's kind of like trying to make up for that with Hunter. Like he's trying to get the last word in his hand. And he also knows that this dude is like completely naive, totally wrapped around Miss Leading's finger. Like, why not get oh, sure, some work yeah. out of her or out of yeah, him? Yeah, and you don't even have to pay him. Because he's he's content <laughs> to uh, just continue to get laid, just for driving. Does he, know, does he really know the concept of currency much? Because he's been so coddled his entire life. I don't. Uh, well, he tries to pay misleading when he tries to get laid after this, but she doesn't want to take it. So he at least learns. But if he if he knows the misleading's a prostitute and kind of understands what a prostitute is enough to want to pay her, then why does he? I guess we're jumping forward just a tiny bit. Why does he freak out so much when he basically discovers what she does for a living? Like I mean, if he if he grasps the concept of, of a prostitute enough to know that she needs to be paid and that's a profession, then when he, well, he, he discovers that she's with someone else, why does he freak out? Maybe, maybe he might not. He might think it's for like lodging. Yeah, I mean, he might not even know that that's not what you know sex is all about. That might be his only is normal. You know, this this is his only experience with it, so this might just be the norm for him. I think that it's um that Hunter thinks that he because he he views it as brand is a brand new thing to him. So I think he viewed it as when they had sex, he viewed it as like an exclusive thing, and he kind of felt that he could break her away from that. So then when he sees her screwing mm -hmm. someone else, then he's like, "What the fuck, yo?" And then that's his uh his immature ego coming into play, kind of like trying to rationalize it in his mind and saying, "How is this possible?" You know. And I think this kind of also reflects a bit upon um, Casey, how he felt towards the ex. And I'm really, I, this is based on just kind of memory from what I've read about what happened. But I think that's kind of Casey putting himself into the shoes of this character, metaphorically speaking. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously this story is an extension of, of Casey's real life events, which I, I almost feel like a dick kind of diving into what we know about that just because it was such a kind of personal thing. But I, I think I mean, perspective matters, though. Obviously, Casey had an experience, or at least as much as it's been described, where he um, he fell for a girl. Presumably, she fell for him as well, but he, he followed her to a different place. He kind of he left everything he knew behind and um, took, took a real chance with her and ended up getting burned. So I think, I mean, if you look at the way Act 2 plays out as a story, he leaves everything he knows... Uh, because and then eventually he falls in love with a girl and he basically puts all of his eggs in that basket he's so excited to know her he's so so in love and then he realizes it's not what he thought it was and completely crushes it 
I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, of course, it's a, a story that's taking place on a larger scale, but it is, Act 2 is kind of the self-contained story of love and loss. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to kind of sum it up a bit. It, it, is, it is a story of love and loss. It, it's more, um, I, I guess a lot of this, it, it's really, the story is really kind of just the maturing of Hunter as a character. This is kind of him realizing what the real world is and moving on beyond uh beyond kind of like how he thought things would be based on his coddled lifestyle beforehand but possibly i don't know it's it really is kind of a tragic story the way it plays out because i mean in this album not only uh does he everything he loves he lost twice so of course all he's loved is miss terry Pryor, and then she dies and then all he knows about love is misleading and then he loses her to circumstances and then he runs off to war because he needs to uh, escape he needs to get even further because he, he tried to leave pain around the lake and the river went to the city found more pain so now he's going as far away as he can at the end of this album where he you know i'm leaving everything i know i'm going to war if i die i die whatever uh so and then he, and then he starts I guess, counting. yeah the, the, <laughs> then he yeah i know i know you love the counting in the song yeah it's, it's my favorite part of the entire acts can you tell um, but I think, yeah, I think we should finish up on Smiling Swine. Uh, anything, anything else you guys want to add? I, w- I want to tap Nick's perspective on uh, Evicted. So I, no one, nothing else for Smiling Swine then. Uh, no. Yeah. I, I think we've right, touched so on Evicted, it. Here we go. Yeah, Nick, how do you how do you interpret Evicted? Because it's it's a interesting. You said it's from Misleading's point of view. Yeah, I don't actually know where I got the source on that, but I'm fairly certain. Uh, Casey said it was from. It literally says on the view. Genius. It says according to Casey, the song is sung from Misleading's point of view or perspective. Okay, yeah. I knew there was a source for it somewhere, but and it has one upvote, so you know it's true. I, I guess just it being from Misleading's point of view. What? Why does it kind of mention? Like in the second verse, if you need a little cash, you sell yourself to everything. A dollar in exchange for failing hearts, so loudly say. Like, is she kind of reflecting on how she's been up until she met Hunter? Um, yeah, I think this was sort of just something that she got into, like, just to make money. She didn't really have any strong feelings for or against it, probably. Um, or at least if she did initially, it, like, subsided after she, like, grew more accustomed to the lifestyle. And just the song talks about kind of like her past life and how she was like, she wasn't well off. She was kind of like on the roadside, uh, bed sheets of broken glass, uh, comfortably abroad on a stolen ticket, implying that maybe she's like also not from the city and she came here. Um, and this was just her way of making her way in the city as Hunter is currently trying to do. Is there more metaphor to that comfortably abroad on a stolen ticket? Because because I'm just thinking about it. Um, may could the stolen ticket perhaps be that she doesn't have her freedom because she's bound to her uh, her profession? Oh, maybe. and that's kind of the ticket to her freedom. Well, it makes you wonder: Is she doing this um, completely by choice? Is it that she, like uh, perhaps the pimp and the priest, found her when she had no other options, and so in a certain sense, she is bound to him through like indentured servitude in a, in a way? Yeah, she might like not be. Like a stolen ticket, she might not even be supposed to be in the city, like like immigration or something. Maybe she's illegal, and he ha- he knows that, and he's using that to like provide her with a job. So, because it's like under the table. I don't know kind if of. as much as her. I don't know if as much as an immigration thing as much as much as it is like she doesn't have a way of making money 
and this is a skill that she can utilize. Yeah, and I think there's a hint of uh, of Stockholm syndrome as well of just yes feeling yes, in, in, indebted to to the pimp and the priest because at the end of the day she has mm. been given a place to stay. She's got, you know, she's being taken care of. You would assume. I'm just I'm I'm going through the lyrics here, just trying to to find other interpretations because this song's always kind of confused. I, I guess I never really made the connection that this was from Misleading's point of view until Nick pointed it out. Uh, so I'm kind of having to reapproach this song, but now I I think you guys are are pretty spot on with with kind of the way you're interpreting it so far. What's what's with the end there? The the whole hey kid get a job. I think that's it's like directed at her because uh, talking about like kind of. Uh, pick yourself up, put on a smile, which is like something that um, you could see a lot of like people say that, that um, everybody always tells girls they need to smile, sure. like when they're working and stuff, like put on a face, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, wash your mouth out, ditch those morals, uh, like kind of ditch your old way of life, step into this role yeah, and then of being like a lady. Sleep, yeah, sleep your way to the top. Um, that makes sleep sense. Your so way this, right to this the is kind of like a, a misleading reflecting on her own life. Perhaps Hunter even gave her the perspective of, I forgot that the world wasn't as bad as I've been presented. And now that I've met this kind of pure, innocent figure, I'm, rem- I'm remembering that that's, there's more to life than just this, this hedonism that I've been living in. She's not an easy job, Rue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm reading this interpretation on Genius um, that I find pretty interesting. Uh, just as Hunter was told to get a job in the Beardersweet 1 and 2 and the Smiling Swine, I don't know why they said the Smiling Swine, uh, misleading seems to be remembering what she was told, get a job. While Hunter was told to learn to drive, she's told to give the world a great big smile and sleep your way to the top, which kind of confirms what Nick said, yeah. And that's that's kind of, I think, the the really only way to perceive this is like... Yeah, that's exactly what I was is thinking. Is that she's kind of she's getting her feelings of self-worth being like heavily stripped down and like broken apart along with her with along with her self-esteem and everything so this way the pimp and the priest can make a few bucks i think she also um like sees herself in hunter because they both have this similar experience she sees like some part a part of her past of how she used to be and wants to like hold on to that yeah i, th- I think that's where i'm heading more with it like what i was saying like uh- She's been so kind of uh, fixated on this hedonistic lifestyle and this just this awful kind of place that she's been in that the, the first pure person that she's met that reminds her of the innocence she had before she had to kind of shut that off uh, is Hunter kind of reminding her of her own humanity to a certain sense. Hmm. I'm, I'm still not convinced, I've got to say. <laughs> Rue is very contentious this episode. It's okay. Misleading is still a pedophile to me, so you're good, Rue. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Oh my god. <laughs> Steve has been very <laughs> I think with the first verse, it's just talking about how she's been so set in her ways of just like this routine that she's gotten into. Um, she's being evicted from her current mindset and like seeing Hunter gives her the juxtaposition of how she used to be versus how she is now. Um, and she is like against that idea at first because she's like, Oh, I don't want to open up emotionally. I'm so used to not doing that. Uh, but then I think with the song she is taking that chance to go out. I think and Nick and I are of a like mind on this one. I, I think this is really uh, mis- misleading being introduced as to, a pedophile. Remembering, yeah. obviously, <laughs> although I don't even think she would be a pedophile. Wouldn't if your interpretation is correct that she's an adult and he's a pubescent <laughs> age? Wouldn't that make her an aphibophile? Makes her an illegal file. Anyway, <laughs> let's go do. A- Sorry, just technically, 
technically speaking. What are the laws even back in this? This like- is also an alternate universe where it could very much be pedophile. Uh, next track. Sing, sing unto me the pleasure and the pain. Evicted was broken to shit. Now let's go to <laughs> Blood of the Rose, my favorite track on Act 2. Is it actually? Steve is very... It's very much so, yes. Oh, I love you. It's. I think. I think this is. Re- I think this might be Make, making matches here. I on think this DR might be just a, a tad above uh, "Dear Misleading" for my favorite track. Ooh. What is it about the song that really? Gra- I mean, because it is so weird. Like it's. I love like, cellos. Same. I used to play the cello, so that might be part of it. I. I'm trying to learn how to play the cello. I suck. It's an at expensive it. fucking instrument, but um. Yes, it <laughs> with, is. With with Blood of the Rose, what I really liked about it is a very simple. Um, is it, I I call it say generic, just a dun dun dun. Dun dun, like the tango to it. The uh, the staccato playing that they're doing is um, it's a perfect groundwork to kind of um lay the feeling. And I believe this is a song where a uh, hunter sees misleading sleeping with another man. Is it Red Hands? I think Red Hands was, was afterwards. Red yeah, I would have thought Red Hands was the reaction song rather than the. Yeah, that's what I thought because Blood of the Rose. The reason why it stuck to me is because um, this this the the way it's being portrayed as a tango. He's kind. Of, I view it as him seeing her as like sleeping with someone else, uh, with the whole dance, dance your decay bit, kind of showing that um, the dance being the act of sex and dance your decay, kind of showing her unfaithfulness in his eyes. And uh, I viewed it as being like a montage of what. Uh, just like how they have their relationship where he's sleeping with her and she's doing her thing that he doesn't know about. And just over time, they develop that sort of relationship. Because there's also a lot of uh, things talking about just like Act 5 and just the acts in general and like the future of things. So I think it's just uh, taking a step back, seeing what their situation is and kind of seeing how that relates to the story as a whole. Clarifying Nick's position, do you think it's like a transition piece to like uh, establish a, a gap of time? Yeah, like a time skip almost. Okay. I can see that. A record scratch. Um, <laughs> a record scratch. <laughs> but the way I'm viewing it is the final stanza. Because the song isn't, it's it just basically, another reason why I like it is it's more of an unconventional approach. It just starts and then it keeps going. Um, and the final stanza where it says, The world burns, but still we breathe. The iron chambered heart is sieve. Um, I'm viewing that as kind of, yeah, he viewed he kind of it's his feeling of seeing this act happen, and that being tied with the tango element of this song is kind of that really interesting perspective of of Hunter seeing that, and as the cellos kind of come in and go from the staccato to more of the bowed longer uh, notes, the the eighths not the eighths, the, uh, the quarters going to the uh, half notes and the holes, it gives you that f- more feeling of I guess uneasiness to an extent because it feels smooth and it feels like a tango but there's also that feeling of unease before it brings you into that angsty rock ballad of red hands which i would view as like what me and rue agree on which we're oddly agreeing quite a bit here as um as a reactionary song yeah don't don't get used to it (laughs) (laughs) as the as the oddly uh, reactionary as a reactionary song to this I'm not sure if I really view it as a montage because I view it pretty straightforward. Uh, Hunter becomes her driver and he's still in love with her. He drives her to the appointment. She sleeps with another guy. She gets back in the car and then he's just like, what the fuck? You know? 
the song kind of ties and you can't really listen to the song without red hands like if you listen to red hands you can't really listen to those without it with this song first because they're tied so strongly together the lyrics are just so fucking vague like i'm going over the lyrics now to see yeah. if i can even it's all swing metaphor. one way or the other and they're just so goddamn vague i mean like um let's see what, what was i looking at here uh, this this uh, that sifts through honest elegance and suffers from the wrong defense. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that whole ending part. I'm like, oh, this sounds great, but I have no idea what it means. Yeah, I, I think this is just all right. So the, I'm going to try and give my uh, pull out of my ass interpretation because, as I established many times, I don't listen to music for the lyrics. So when I heard it was a cohesive plot, I'm like, cool. I don't care. <laughs> so now that now I'm breaking it down, it's quite an interesting change. But uh, the world burns, but still we breathe. Uh, I'm viewing that as literally the world that she's in, her profession, being surrounded by all these really toxic people, kind of them to being the kind of, I guess, pure amongst the mix, going into the iron-chambered heart, a sieve, showing kind of how she needed to callous herself as like as a person through a profession that sifts through honest elegance kind of taking literally the honest elegance out of all the shit that she's surrounded with and suffers the wrong defense for having to answer to her to what she does for profession showing she might be more than that than like what's on the surface that sounds spot on but that's all out of my ass i could be very wrong that's kind of what i was grabbing from it too i just didn't really know how to like articulate it I'm just I'm looking over the the first kind of stanza here, and it almost and I'm I'm not necessarily saying because this is also out of my ass because I this this song this never really made much sense to me, but um, misleading saying all the while or I'm interpreting it as misleading saying it all the while unknowing that you're led astray, kind of perhaps she understands that Hunter doesn't quite know what's going on that he's just kind of caught up in the motion of it all and doesn't really know the the power structure of the, the prostitution business or what exactly she does. And then uh, sleep, sleep through your woe while your voice slowly weathers and melts away. It's almost like she's kind of affectionately considering him and, and she knows that it's all going to fall out eventually. And then, of course, it does come to a head in this next song where he, he does discover. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of interpreting it as mis- misleading knowing that this thing that's going on isn't going to last. Like, that Hunter is not fully grasping the situation and that she's, she's fearful of when he really does realize what she is because she's almost ashamed of it herself. Or to contrast that, when Hunter's saying, this could be Hunter saying, dance, dance your decay, all the while knowing that you're led astray. It could be view, it could be him literally viewing her going through the act of sleeping with another man, kind of his processing of it in the moment. Sleep, sleep through your woe, kind of him seeing that she may be forced to be doing this because she's still meant, she's still emotionally attached to Hunter. While her voice slowly withers and melts away, she's kind of losing her. Uh, her only really power which is her voice her say in a situation and that's kind of why i view this song as him viewing as as her sleeping with someone else and the next one being the reactionary because it seems like it's a lot of kind of the cogs turning in hunter's head and the windows xp reboot sound constantly playing as this is as this is going through that's just that that's the way i could see it and i'm going to click the uh i'm going to quickly translate the section in spanish where sangre, sangre de la rosa, uh, which that whole bit, uh, blood, blood of the rose, follow in peace without the past, pray, pray for her soul, she will die in a baptism of flame, referencing Baptismo del Foco. 
Um, I, which I'm still probably butchering. I pulled up the Lake and the River forum, which has like the whole collection of story time answers. Uh, all it says is that Blood of the Rose is about Act 5, and that's the only thing it says. It's about what? But why? Um, I don't... I think it might just be relating to what happens between them in Act 5. You know what? I'm, I'm going to double down on this and say this supports my theory that all of this is Hunter's kind of uh, retrospection on the situation. Like, he, he... In the last few songs, he remembered their love, and then this is like... I'm almost having an apprehension to remember the next part of the story. Like, it's almost him telling himself, like... It's like that, ah, um, this one happens. It's just snapping away, trying to figure it out. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, kind of. Like, I, this is almost Hunter talking to himself. Because if I'm, if I'm looking at this the, the way I am, which is all of this is, like, Hunter's retrospection from between Act 4 and Act 5, he, he remembers all the fondness of them falling in love and the joy that happened thereafter... And then this song kind of divides the happiness from the sadness, almost like he's saying, man, remember how great it used to be? And then it all went to shit right here. And it, if I had just known that she was going to die someday, then I could have approached the situation differently. I could have you know, stayed with her, understood what she was going through, but instead I overreacted. Like this is almost him lamenting what happens next. Yeah, I think this is definitely a song just taking a step back and saying like, hey, just so you guys know, Shit's about to hit the fan. I view this as, as where she fricks another man. So we all have different interpretations. However, we do get to transition in. This is all in the, this episode is literally just agree to disagree. That that's literally <laughs> this episode, <laughs> and I'm not even agreeing to disagree. I'm just doing it in the interest of time. I will fight you guys till the death on this. I can't wait to make the post about this episode. Come listen to a bunch of people who have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. I'll tell you what you should know. The, the four the four <laughs> versions trying to talk about whether or not you fuck a belly button, <laughs> which obviously you do. But anyway. Uh, that's the best form of birth control is to fuck the belly button. And next anyway. up, we have the song that could not manage to make it up to the top 14 tracks on Acts 2, Red Hands. Because you can't become red hands not We know how Steve feels about red hands. Uh, we're not going to get into the meaning of it uh, quite yet. But I think we're all kind of in agreement about what red hands is. And this is everything kind of coming to a head with um, the, the love and the romance and the illusion falling apart and, and Hunter's immediate feelings afterward. I mean, we are all in agreement on that one, right? Yes, I would say so. So far. Yeah. I can't say I agree with you objectively on things anymore because I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting for you to say something that's completely utterly stupid to me. And I'm just ready to slam down that gavel. Oh God. Listen to any of the minutes before this. I say something stupid every Quite a quickness, so. <laughs> Take a shot every time one of us says something stupid. They're going to be drinking we during we that. We were trying uh, to come up with the drinking. Yeah. They're going to be drinking during that bittersweet three segment. Yeah, the weird thing about Red Hands is it's such kind of a, a big song in the fan base being the first thing resembling a hit for them. And it is so important in the framework of the story where, I mean, this album being about uh, Hunter's heartbreak, this is what it leads to. This is the, the, the time, This is the peak of the story. And then it, and then it kind of goes down to the next, next part of the story, just him going to war. So it's a very simple song. I mean, it really is just him going through the emotions of, oh shit, uh, the, the woman I'm in love with has cheated on me, or at least the way he perceives it. That's, that's how it happened. And, um, this is so terrible. You're awful. You're just the worst thing. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to anyone ever. Um, it's a very kind of whiny song. It is. And that's one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's also like a, um, 
it's also really probably the best at portraying Hunter's uh, naivety uh, of his life. He's uh, such a young person at this point. It's immaturity. And it's, exactly. it's something that I think everyone, at least to some extent, would be able to relate to, which... Well, yeah, we I think we all remember our first breakup, which felt like the world was going to yeah. end. So I, I think this is really just the, the foot stomping, why is the world so cruel? Um, let me part my hair over to the side, all emo. <laughs> well, let, me, let me just throw on the Black Parade and just... Yeah, this this is Hunter. This is Hunter writing in his 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 poetry book. Get that eyeliner how out. How awful the world is. Absolutely, yeah. This song is um. What I I find I find it thematically interesting <laughs> though, because while the while the blood of the rose was more of a was more my perspective of the act of her cheating. This picks right up, saying even if you've never strayed from me, it pretty much starts immediately off. Maybe a couple seconds of instrumentation before coming right into it. Uh, and even then, it's just like the way the instrumentation starts with the do 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 do. It sounds like he's waving his finger, you know, like in disapproval. Elaborate on that. What do you mean? It sounds like he's waving his finger. Like the the way it's like um the the way the uh the ding dong kind of sound of the uh of the intro to the song where uh with the synths it sounds it to me sounds like Hunter's kind of like waving his finger like no 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 I can't believe you did that you fucking suck kind of thing and. Going right into even if you've never strayed from me, I'd question your fidelity. It's really kind of Hunter really laying into her, and um, her just kind of like fighting back, uh, saying I tear out my heart and pinned it on my sleeve for you to see I'm on display. And Hunter's just like, nah, fuck you, fuck what you have to say. You don't mean anything to me anymore. Yeah, I mean it's it's Hunter being a fuckboy, which is basically um, you know when when something bad happens to him, he's the one who is in the rights. Like, look how virtuous and good I was. He's being very narcissistic. Yeah, and he's basically telling her, like, oh, I always knew that you were terrible. I always knew you were a slut or a whore. Yeah, he's he's literally just uh, portraying what a modern-day fuckboy would be. This mm. is, it's just, it's so, I think it's almost supposed to be just whiny and, and hard to listen to. Cause it, it is just so laser-focused on this, oh, what was me? Like, how, how could she possibly do this to me when I'm so great type thing? It's just, it's very, I don't know, I, I think it's intentionally supposed to be that way. This is this is almost like a negative manifestation of maybe a feeling that Casey was having, which is like, you know, admonishing himself for having this this very immature response to a situation. Hmm. Everyone jump in. It's definitely a Hunter like rewriting what happened because he wants to seem like he like knew it was happening the whole time. Like, oh, obviously you didn't trick me. Like, I was aware, and I just always had this hunch about you and obviously he he didn't he was head oh, over yeah. heels the entire time um and it, it it this is where it goes from the different viewpoints of oh like she was misleading him the whole time hence her name and she was just cheating and she like didn't want to do anything uh because she just wanted to keep things like the way they were and just keep them in the dark or you could do the interpretation of he just didn't really realize that he was in an open relationship with a prostitute, which I think there's truth to both of those. Um, but I, sorry, Rue, I don't think that she was doing it in a manipulative way. Uh, at least not in a, not in a, like, I don't know how to say it, like not in a mean way, I guess is I'm blanking on the word. 
like malicious. Yeah, not not a malicious way. It was just yeah. uh, I like where this is. I want to protect him from the truth, sort of thing. Not necessarily to fuck him over. Just he's pure. He doesn't need to have this realization mm. right now. Yeah, I mean, I I never really. Yeah, I, I still can't see it the other way. I, I kind of see misleading as being. <laughs> Rue, I fucking adore you. I'm, I'm doubling down, you know? But I, I, I see misleading as kind of being almost like, well, what what did you expect? Of, of course I'm going to, you know, sleep with other people. It's my job. And I, hey, Who I, the fuck do you think you are? My love interest? <laughs> fuck you. Well, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that interpretation. <laughs> I, I think it kind of ties in with the way that I view Blood in the Rose, which was like, um, she she has no other choice. Like, if she were to stop being a prostitute, she would probably be out on the streets. Like, because even in the blood in the uh, or in evicted, she even uh, basically says like, "Hey, before I did this, I was on the streets. You know, at least I have somewhere to be now, even if it's you know an emotionally turbulent situation." So I, I think blood in the rose tying into red hands is basically her saying like, uh, "I can't stop this, and it, I know this is going to hurt him eventually. This is going to drive him away." And then. So I, I guess I don't see misleading as being manipulative either. I think she she's her hands are tied by circumstance, and she she kind of knows that she's going to scare him away, or that her actions or her profession are going to hurt him eventually. And then, of course, in, in red hands they do, and he handles it in the worst way. I think it's also important to note if you uh, if you go with my interpretation of evicted, she's also emotionally vulnerable at this point. Like she's gone out of her normal way of doing things to open her heart up to this guy. And she's also kind of like not sure what to do in this situation. She doesn't know how to wow. handle it. She wants to be with this guy, but obviously there's just so many moving parts because of the pimp and the priest controlling the dude. And he doesn't know what's going on and he wants to be with her, but he doesn't know what she does. So she like, what, like, what does she do in that situation? Does she say, Oh, I'm a prostitute. And he's like, what? And he's like, yeah, like, she's like, yeah, I sleep with other people. And he's like, Oh, yeah, I, th I think her Bye. hands are tied as, as much as... I mean, I would say even more than Hunter's are. I think she's maybe more of a victim than he is. At least a victim to circumstance. Like, she she literally can't stop yeah. doing this. You know, like like Nick was saying, she she has these feelings, and she would really love to act on them in a way that most people could, but, you know, she, she is what she is, and she's got to continue doing this because she came from nothing, and at least now she has something. It's not like she can quit her job either, you know, like... what Right. Hmm. I, I, I just think... It's it's a very one-sided thing from Hunter's perspective of he's he's kind of built up this this false this this just a completely overblown and just unrealistic view of the relationship. Oh, yeah. he's I actually, think, got. I think we're all. I think that's also partially true. Yeah, we're all in agreement there mm. that Hunter is is totally. Uh, and I just don't think that from misleading's perspective, there's anything resemblant to what what Hunter sees. I don't think that they're, they're on the same page. I don't think they've, you know, I, I don't think they've kind of, they're, they're not in agreement, and I don't think either of them are aware of the fact that they're not on the same page as the other person, and that that's where the conflict well, comes I, from, from my point of view. I know we have to move on from Red Hand soon, but I, I think kind of combining all of our interpretations, I think this is why Act 2 is a little more complicated uh, analysis of emotions than it, it appears to be, because... I mean, this this huge event is basically just boiled down to uh, different circumstances and miscommunication and misinterpretation. Like, uh, I don't think either of them are in the right or in the wrong necessarily. I mean, of course, the way Hunter reacts is unideal. But um, 
I, I think it's it's almost saying like, hey, I mean, even the perfect love, or at least as they both kind of interpreted it, uh, can can end for a conflict of interest or or a misunderstanding. All right. Well, I think that kind of sums up Red Hands. Um, anything else you guys want to throw in? I think we pretty much shocked this one to death. I think I think we can move on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Where the road parts. Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is actually my favorite. Like, Blood of the Roses, maybe number two. This is my actual favorite. Yeah, this song is up there. With, this is the top three for me. Emo ballad, let's go. So from what I understand, he has just seen misleading with this dude. Uh, he kind of, in the in the booklet, he, like, gets kicked out of the room by the dude as they're both just crying there on the ground. Uh, that's really sad and dramatic, honestly. Um so he like tumbles down these stairs and he like goes and gets lost and he finds himself in a bar and then ends up like writing this letter to Where her. Where do you get this context from? Um, the, the booklets, the CD booklet that came with act two. It's in there. I should probably read the CD booklet. Oh my, there's like a whole like comic mini comic oh, in there. I'm not going to get my book. Did that come with act two or act three? I thought act three came with like the, the act two. Act three had the postcards. Uh, Act two also had its whole graphic. I I can copy the link and send it to you guys in the Discord. Yeah. I want to. I'm probably seen it before, but I could have sworn it came with Act three. Shit, you're right on. Yeah, because it it has both Act two and three. Oh, this is a special edition uh, in this okay. imager post. Yeah, no. Act yeah. Oh, is it? Act two no and idea. three are. I don't um, actually have any of the CD copies, so I don't. Act two and three are like legitimately jewel cases. And they act two opens up to like a full uh, CD booklet and act three is postcards. So this is a special edition of, it looks like a special edition of act three. Yeah. Yeah. I could have sworn it was from the special edition of act three, but I mean, I, I guess that's a bit uh, of a digression because we're kind of analyzing the story. Here. Yeah. Sorry. You, you said that when, when, when I see a picture of act three, I get very, very uh, intimate. Yes. Steve's ready to start recording the act three <laughs> episode right now. I already started. <laughs> you guys aren't invited. Any, anyway, Nick, you were kind of breaking down the song. So if you want to kind of like, continue because i think you have a bit more respect than we do because i i didn't really understand this context of uh, specifics either oh uh, well so yeah in the cd booklet this is where i'm drawing most of my context uh for this uh mm -hmm. act is basically it says that like he finds himself just like in a sad fit just wandering around the city finds himself in a bar gets super drunk and then he's like hey bartender give me a piece of paper i'm gonna write down like this letter and uh he like sends this whole fit of just like a horrible rant basically to misleading and then it's it's sort of like a back and forth between them there's a few letters from what i'm gathering and she's trying to say i don't know how they are sending these letters to each other while he's in a bar but she's like asking him to meet me like where we first met where the road parts um by the church and the dime um and he's basically refusing to meet up with her He's just trying to rewrite history to his own, how he wants it to be told. Well, are we are we sure that it's letters they're exchanging back and forth? Because the song does mention telephones, so perhaps they're exchanging telephone calls. Because that, that seems like it would make a little more sense as far as like immediate uh, yeah, communication. Yeah, telephones, the best communication in World War One. In this alternate universe, yes. Yeah. Man, Graham Bell is sure happy. But then, you, but then you have Black Sandy Beaches, which kind of obscures things which I, I mentioned earlier i have two songs that i have huge problems with in the stories and once we get to black sandy beaches i can complain about it a little bit more but yeah I, I think maybe the the communication form might be telephones i mean uh 
like I said, Nick, you have a bit more context. Do you think that could be possible? Uh, so like the Act 2 CD booklet, I'm using it as a reference, but I don't know how like canon it is because there are things in the uh, graphic novel that have been like amended. Uh, and he said that they're not 100% canon too, I think at some points. Uh, but this part right here, like for little Dear Misleading section says, when the boy came to, he found himself in a local bar with a fairly high tab. He had more than exhausted his reasonable funds, leaving himself uh, no outs. After asking for the barkeep for paper, he began to write. Uh, Dear Misleading, I hate to tell you that I no longer need your services, etc. So it moves right into Dear Misleading then. Wait, so are, we're done with the Where the Roads part and we're... We're moving on. Well, I, I think I think what what they're saying is that it, it ties yeah. directly into each other. Where the road parts and dear misleading. Well, dear misleading, yeah, because where the road part, like if you said what is true and that he's writing the letter, then dear misleading is literally yeah. that letter. Uh, so I, I guess I might have just gotten them like a little bit so. mixed up there. But yeah, where the road parts is like some of the context for the letters. Well, and that makes that makes sense because she's asking him to meet where the road parts in the letters. So I guess let's move on to dear misleading. <laughs> Because it's leading right into it anyway. Seriously, uh, I think Steve, you said this is like one of your favorites. I I love this because it is probably the most rock sounding song on this album, and it's not because of that, but it just has that it has that really cool raw feel to it, where it's just kind of aggression, completely unfiltered, with a just badass solo that still has not been tabbed. So, uh, I tabbed it. Did you tab it? Like the whole thing? It's in the video playthrough that I put on the group. Oh, well, nice. it looks like we might have to link it in the post. Mm. It's a very yeah the uh, very good song. But this song, what what I find really interesting about this song is um because when I first heard this album, the way I listened to the acts is I did three, then I did four and five, and Hunter hates that I said that I wasn't too pleased with four and five when I first heard it, so I went back to uh I went back to one, and then I went to two, and uh the entire time trying to figure out I thought misleading was maybe the enemy in the story, so uh. As I, I was reading this, when it just starts off a dear misleading, I hate to tell you that I no longer need your services. Going right into that, it's just like such a perfect display of a de- emotional detachment while still being attached. Like he's still, you can tell he still clearly has feelings, but he's writing this letter not for her, but for him. Uh, he's writing it to kind yeah, of. It, he's, he's just being. He's being an arsehole, like straight up. <laughs> yeah, but he's 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 writing this to basically fuel his own ego. And That's just, kind of a sick burn to say like, "Hey, I no longer need your services." Like he's basically just saying, "You're nothing but a whore." No, he's writing this to kind of fuel his own his own ego and say that and justify what he was doing and leaving the situation, and also saying that you are no longer a person. You are exactly what you thought you were, which was just a product to other people to use. And yeah, yeah, it's very cruel. Yeah, it is. And it's it really, this is the perfect display of Hunter's immaturity and narcissism. And I thought it was really interesting in the way that they actually, they structured it into a letter. And it's showing, like I said earlier, where it was Hunter falling in love with misleading. Now he's trying to rationalize it to lust and saying that I regret to inform you I've fallen out of lust. Yeah, and he even, he calls her stupid. He says like, shame on me for falling uh, for falling for someone so dense, like he's basically just saying, like, "Wow, you're so stupid, you're fucking you dumb for falling in love saying? with me, you fucking nerd." <laughs> and then he 
he says in that in that same uh, verse, he says, "I might have fooled around for something warm, something with security." <laughs> He's basically just saying, like, "Yeah, I mean, that's all you were to me. You were just a lay. Like, sorry if you you took it a little more serious than that." Like, I mean, this is really him just being. He's switching the roles, really. He's yeah, yeah. <laughs> in Rue's eyes, yeah. <laughs> if if you look at like the stages of grief and how people uh, kind of go through different feelings whenever they're processing a situation. I mean, act one was kind of uh, a rejection of the situation. Like, how how could she do this to me? And then this is the anger stage. This is him basically act saying, one like, oh, being you the did rejection that. stage. Or, I'm sorry, not not act one. Red hands. I have no idea. What <laughs> gotcha. Act one. Red red hands being basically his denial of I can't believe this happened. And then this is the anger phase. This is him saying, oh, well, it did happen, but fuck you for it. So I, I think maybe he's kind of going I through mean, the stages I mean, of grief here. There's angry, and then there's there's this. Which is just on, <laughs> on you know, like he, he really goes above and beyond. Strange, strangely, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, this is like next level. Like, I don't know if it, it's over the angry, top. It's angry. It's angsty. It's immature. It's just a really, really toxic cocktail that you're being delivered. It's the sort of thing you might see on some forum. It sounds so good. This is just a misleading diss track. Well, I, I guess that explains why. Because uh, I, I know that we don't want to jump straight from Dear Misleading because there's still some things to talk about, but it kind of does tie in with Black Sandy Beaches because, I mean, this is in Dear Misleading, they're kind of writing letters back and forth or communicating in some way back and forth. And then uh, Black Sandy Beaches is almost referring to that directly. Fast forward to the future. Which, uh, are, are we on Black Sandy Beaches? Because I, I, I want to bitch about it real quick. No, let's, we got to actually say what the song means a little bit more. Damn, we, okay. we can't just gloss over this. Um Dear okay. Misleading is basically Hunter cutting the knife in his ties with Misleading. It's basically him just saying, I don't care about you anymore. We're done. You're nothing to me. You never were. And I think we should just both accept that and move on. You keep doing your job where you're completely unfaithful, and I'll keep being the respectful person that I am. That's kind of the way he's going about this. And him moving forward with that is... It's just, this is really just kind of a catalyst. This is like kind of Hunter's breaking point going from someone that could potentially be a good hearted and a good, a good spirited person into someone that's just so foul and bitter that can yeah. never move on from it. This is the moment. And this will continue to haunt him for the rest of the acts. Yeah, this is definitely the turning point. I would agree there. I think up until this point, you can kind of understand. You, you, you can empathize and you can put yourself into Hunter's shoes, but this is the turning point where you can't really, you, you can't justify this level of toxicity. So, yeah, man, Hunter, you need to get some therapy or something. This is, Take it down this is really quite mean. <laughs> you need to drink some gamer juice. Yeah, you remember, you remember in the Act 1 episode where I said the whole story might be about me? I, I disavow that now because I do not want to be this hunter. So <laughs> it's okay. It's the hive mind. You're there there anyway. Uh, with that, I think we're good to move on to black sandy beaches. I'll go for it. Can I say one thing? Yeah, yeah totally. No, you're not allowed. Uh, Get off your show. I'm just gonna rip this straight from my blog because uh, I think I put it better there than I could say now. Um, is that the the title of this song and the band's name have a direct parallel? That's uh, that's interesting. Like deer hunter yeah. and deer misleading. But, and what I said on here is uh, Dear Misleading, which complements the name of the band, The Deer Hunter, uh, yet another double entendre as the title of the song is used to contrast the meaning of the band name. 
Uh, the use of deer in the band name is one of endearment, a mother for her son. The deer in the song title is used by Hunter to address misleading and anger, so in someone who has up until recently served as a parallel to his mother. Uh, this is a great way to show how Hunter has become the exact thing his mother wanted to avoid. Uh, what was once said to him uh, maternally, he now uses to lash out against someone that was just like his mother. Yeah, that's interesting because when he's using deer for this song, it's a completely emotionally detached kind of formal uh, introduction to a letter. Mm-hmm. Like a formal greeting. That he's using to just rip or a new one. And even beyond that, it's just basically, it, it's just him just kind of addressing her as someone that's foreign to him. So that's a very interesting mm-hmm. parallel with that. Um, yeah, that's something that actually never really crossed my mind. Uh, if any if anyone like if anyone in the uh, in the group or anyone listening to this has any uh, has anything that they want to um, contribute to this or say maybe we completely got wrong, please let us know. We'd be glad to hear from you all. But uh, any other last points before we go into Black Sandy Beaches? To add on what you said, yeah. If you have any uh, thoughts about this, uh, roll it up, put it in a bottle, and and throw it in the ocean. Put it in we'll, the ocean. We'll get it eventually. Or reach out to us in uh, the meaning of and all things regarding the deer hunter. Uh, Rue on on Facebook, Instagram, and Rue Nottage. Uh, Hunter on Facebook as Hunter Workman, or Instagram as Megadrugi, or t- or Twitter at Dear Apparition Podcast. Me at Drag and Toss underscore Nick. Where could they find you? Because we're doing this now, so this way we can get the retention. Uh, I'm as Nickadactyl on pretty much everything, like wherever you want to find me. Uh, on Facebook, I am in the group as just my name, Nick Weber. Uh, but pretty much all social media, I believe, I'm just under Nickadactyl. All right. Awesome. And with that, we can and, and definitely check out the True Name Music. I mean, that's, that's, yes. that's a fantastic. Oh, yeah. My, my website, uh, truenamemusic.com. Perfect. Now we can move on to Black Sandy Beach. Yes, let's move on. We got that out of the way. Perfect. Yes. Okay. So Black Sandy Beaches. Black Sandy Beaches, let me go off. Here, here we go. <laughs> it's fucking weird. Okay, it, it's it's fucking weird. It's another one of those uh, songs. I, I think it, it really only kind of rivals a Poison Woman, and it's just the amount of nonsense it makes narratively. Because it's this it's this third party perspective. Who who knows who the fuck it is? But not only are they kind of just a random third party looking at the situation, but they're misinterpreting it. Like they they kind of um they. I mean, of course, Hunter's being an asshole and he's treating him as leading like shit. And she's she's presumably trying to win him over and apologize and try to explain what happened. But uh, it's almost like the third party is misinterpreting this as they were in a, a long term relationship and he kicked her out and he was just such an asshole to her. When I mean, that that's not the situation that happened at all. So it, it adds nothing to the story. The song, it just comes out of fucking nowhere. And by the time it's done, you it hasn't added to the narrative at all. It's I mean, it hasn't. It hasn't even reflected on the narrative. It's just like an aside that's slightly distorted from what actually happened. I have a little bit of a headcanon about the song. Sure. Sure. Um, I don't think it's necessarily talking about Hunter and misleading. I think it could be about any number of people that are in this cycle that Hunter is going through. Because this is a cyclical story. It's happened before and it will happen again, uh, assumingly. So I think that this could just be at any point in time before or after the act. See, I have something to bounce honestly. off of that, and this could actually this will support Rue's perspective, but it's an alternate uh, it's an alternate perspective. Um, this could be Hunter going to the docks to go on the boat, 
And before he goes on the boat, before vital vessels vindicate, uh, he sees this on the beach and he picks it up and then he reads it. Well, these, these are all great theories. Unfortunately, Casey has given perspective on what this means. And uh, even more unfortunately, it doesn't make me feel any better about the song. Because apparently what this is, and the way Casey wants to write it in the comics, is that Black Sandy Beaches is like a um, almost a psychotic break of misleadings. Where she's she's having this um, almost schizophrenic moment in her mind. Like this is, this is how he characterized it. That she's basically having a mental breakdown. And this is... In, in some way happening within her mind. This isn't in any way happening literally or in-universe. This is just, in Miss Leading's mind, she's going crazy. And it makes it makes zero sense. I, I really don't understand. Wait, where's the source on that? Uh, that was on Reddit. Yeah, that was on Reddit. Oh, like he, he said that on Reddit? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I, I missed that one. That's a whole different perspective. Um, I'm just going to go flat out and say Casey is wrong. And uh, <laughs> he's wrong about his own story that he wrote. What is? Um, I mean, if, if for some reason I'm mischaracterizing what he said, which I've I've poured over this exact statement enough that I feel like I'm getting pretty close to what he was saying. Uh, if if Casey wants to correct the record or someone who more directly knows what Casey's going for, but Casey did say that this song in particular is going to be represented as, or what it is, is in misleading's mind. She's basically having a psychotic break. So that doesn't help because it still makes no fucking sense. Well, that's new to me. I don't know what to say yeah. anymore. I'll see if I can find the screenshot. I'll send it to you guys. It's probably in the group somewhere, but I, I know for a fact that it exists. Rue, what do you think? Do you think he's just another piece of meat? Uh, Rue, Rue somehow I've, thinks I've, this is a misleading spot. This, is, I know this is the point of Rue's psychotic break, I'll, too. I've dug myself too deep at this point, so I'm, I'm <laughs> just going to keep digging, you know? Keep digging. <laughs> This song is more evidence for why Rue hates misleading. Oh my yeah, Somehow. I think she's just upset oh. that she's lost a customer. <laughs> <laughs> Keep digging. Keep digging. She's really fucking upset. She has a psychotic break because of customer. God, Rue's just fucking coughing up black dust right now. I, he takes her job I seriously. Lost that a customer who wasn't even paying. Maybe he just had really good. Uh, I told this you is he, just, he's like Patrick Payne yeah, this, in Game of Thrones. This, this is just him reflecting upon a story that he was once told while eating taquitos from Seven Eleven. That's all the acts are. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, th- this song uh, is rivaled only with the Poison Woman and just the the lack of sense it makes in the context of the story and how it's it's just a total. It's it's just a, it's. I mean, it's. I'm going to say the Poison Woman's even worse, but it's pretty close. I think the Poison Woman is is a total like nonsense MacGuffin, which I understand why it had had. We're, we're doing the act three later on, but anyway, uh, this is a great song, mm-hmm. like musically speaking. Uh, it's it's really like there's a lot of really great moments, but just in the context of a storytelling elements, like it just it makes no sense either in the album or by Casey's kind of uh, retconning interpretation. So yeah, a weird fucking song, but it does lead us into the conclusion of the album. Yeah, the the big grand finale. And what actually this song uh I I found it really interesting. This is uh Casey using it, it's him showing nature more kind of blatantly in his music with the seagulls and the kind of yeah, water kind of going by and getting everything. into the uh that kind of soundscape production. Oh shit! Really, really quick before we get into the last song, I remembered uh, that state that statement by Casey about Blank City Beaches. I remember the context behind it now. Casey didn't say it on Reddit, so it's entirely possible this isn't necessarily true. But it was someone uh, posting what Casey told them about the comic. But 
they did in that this was before Casey said how many comics there are going to be like officially and they did also in that comic say that it was going to be that many comics so yeah and Casey also told me that Red Hands is about a guy making spaghetti sauce <laughs> I'm just there, there's a chance it may be wrong but this person was representing something Casey told to them and within the comment there was a layer of truth and uh, they also said that Casey said this about uh, Black Sandy Beach so to add an asterisk and cover my own ass, Casey may not have said this, but it seems like someone is representing something Casey said. Perhaps misrepresenting it, but this is as closely as I can report on it. So anyway, we can we can go to the conclusion. Vital vessels vindicate. Where's the S in that one? Vessels. Vital vessels vindicate. I I found a miss. Like different places, I'll find the S and like the in vessels, the last one, the last S at the end. I'll I'll see it at Vital Vessel oh, I'm reading, Vindicates. I'm sorry. Yeah, and on the album riff that I have, it says Vital Vessel Vindicates, and on Genius it says Vital Vessels Vindicate. So yeah, I think it's vessels though. Yeah, I think it makes more sense. I don't I don't know for sure. As a it's the v- 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 let's just call it that triple v-, 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 v triple V. That's what I, I for, yeah. The All right. Who wants riff. to take away Vital Vessels Vindicate? He wants to send us off. I will. I will take care of that. You want one. to send us off to World War um, One? Such a good boy. Yeah. So Vital Vessels Vindicate. It's the end of the album. Um, as we were kind of talking about the stages of grief that Howard was experiencing, uh, the denial, the anger. Uh, we we jumped a couple to get here, but this is basically Hunter um, accepting the situation and wanting to get as far away from it as he, as he possibly could. Similar way he did when Miss Terry died. He ran away. Uh, he's running even further away now. Perhaps not addressing his problems like he should be. But um, in this song, we kind of hear him at the pier uh, getting on a boat, and uh, he's basically going off to war, which is where our next album comes in. Act three is him in the war. So this is this is Hunter, again, dealing with his problems in the worst way possible um, and just running away. As far as story-wise, that's, that's about as deep as it goes. It's just Hunter saying, fuck it, fuck all you, I'm out of here. Yeah, it's just, it's him. Uh, it has some rep- reprises throughout. Like, uh, we fall beneath the sea of dreams. Yeah, and I mean, the it's got the, surface. There's, there's a lot of reprises. It starts off with the same melody from... The exits on Flawed. Go Hammer. Yeah, this this is uh, this is my speciality. <laughs> uh, so it starts off with the, with the same melody from Black Sandy Beaches from the chorus. The uh, Except it's in the key of C. So it's got that reprise straight off. So it, it's there's probably some kind of significance there. Uh, I think the reprise is just kind of representing the beach. I mean, because Black City Beach is literally on a beach, and then in Battle Vessels Vindicate, he's on a pier near the near the ocean. I think probably that mm. that motif just represents um, spatially where he is. Well, it also appears in Smiling Swine. Then fuck me. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember it showing up in Smiling Swan though. And in Kata, and yeah, his beautiful that, that, life, and father. Snake. And it's not called rebirth, father. It's called daddy. And yeah. is there anybody here? You, you could just be bringing up songs. I. <laughs> yeah, it is used so so many times. No, I'm, I yeah. I have my Excel sheet up right now. That that's such a common melody throughout the entire. Act I guess that's one of the reprises that I that I am less versed on because I I didn't realize it was so extensive. Yeah, like yeah, like on the video I made, there's that's probably the longest one. I with, with the most examples. I haven't said in my write up that I like don't know which one it is. 
I'm trying to find on Reddit. Someone responded to me saying that it's kind of about uh, the separation of like him and misleading. Uh, Temporal Shrew on Reddit. I don't know who that is, but I see their name a lot. Uh, it says I'd like to. If they said something really smart, I'm going to pretend it's me. So. <laughs> Uh, they said, I think it's pretty much symbolic of the collapse of Hunter and Misleading's relationship or of separation in general. In that sense, it appears almost in the background of Smiling Swine to foreshadow this because Smiling Swine is when Hunter is absolutely giddy about his prospects with Misleading. It's basically the music quietly implying he's getting ahead of himself. And then uh, I kind of like built on that because it's in Is There Anybody Here? And I think that that's sort of a separation because I always view that song as more of like sleep paralysis this is going a little bit into act four, but, um, but just that separation of like, maybe like a dissociation sort of where like his head and reality are kind of like getting a little bit too far apart. Mm, it's interesting. That's just a little bit stretching it, but that's kind of how I'm getting that. I'm, I'm personally motif. not too sure of, of what that reprise means, uh, or what it's supposed to signify, but, it's it's really cool how Casey's managed to weave it in, and a lot of the time without people even noticing that it's there. <clears throat> yeah, so that's uh, it's really interesting. I'm just curious because it's it's all over the place. It's got to mean something. Okay. I just don't know what. Yeah, of course, it's probably one of the most common ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we've uh, established anything at all during this episode, and, and probably the Act 1 episode 2, is that uh, so much of this is up to interpretation, because Casey doesn't spell it out, and he's probably not gonna, even once he releases the books, so probably gonna be things that aren't necessarily answered. He literally won't spell it out until someone brings it to him, and then he'll say that's right. Or or he'll just uh, misdirect, or... That's just kind of like your some... opinion, man. <laughs> That's the second Big Lebowski reference this episode. We should ring a bell. <laughs> All right, two um, shots. But yeah, no, I, I think a lot of this is very open to interpretation. That's what's cool about the story. Uh, that's what makes it so fun to get together with people and talk about it. Uh, it is a really dense and, and fun story to examine. At its core, it's an exploration of human emotion um, with, of course, some social commentary stuff like that thrown in there so it's it's a really cool story what these re what this particular reprise means i, I have no well I, I guess that sums up act two <laughs> i think i think at this point we're all just fucking that, exhausted i, I mean, mean digging real, into this album like, for two and a half it's hours tomorrow right now oh gosh let's just start with act three right now i'm ready to go <laughs> we got cranking yeah i don't like rue isn't it like six o'clock in the morning where you are it's just about <laughs> seven five yeah been up since oh my, uh, like one. Oh my god! Yeah, Rue Rue makes a, a sacrifice to his body to do to do this. And I'm two hours so, late to my D and D session. Uh, Hell yeah! Ah, uh, you can play D and D anytime. No, but I I think um th this was a very very dense episode. I think we're all pretty. <laughs> oh, we pretty are done over it at the we moment. So. uh <laughs> Yeah, perhaps perhaps we should yeah. just put a bow on. So, it. Act Two, the story, like Hunter said, he summed up perfectly: a story of love and loss, the story of falling in and out of love, the story of realizing your self worth and comparing it to the actuality of where it lies, and going from childhood to adulthood. It. Yeah, it's part. Yeah, just watch Moulin Rouge. It, I mean, it has it has some similarities to Moulin Rouge. I, in in the whole falling in love with the prostitutes, 
type situation. So, I mean, you should watch Moulin Rouge, uh, the movie anyway, because it's got Will McGregor in so everything good. except Star Wars prequels. Anyway. You know, they named his love interest in the Clone Wars Satine because of that movie. I, I never bet. actually watched the Clone Wars. Oh, you need to. That's the reason the prequels are good. Well, it's it's too close to the prequels. I, I, can't, I can't stomach it. You're missing Hunter, it. Hunter's like, so he's <laughs> completely averse to change. Anything that's slightly different, he's like, nope, fuck that. I'm out. <laughs> anyway, so that was act two. Anyway, uh, I, th- I think we've been all things regarding misleading. Yeah, we've given we've given where you can find all of us. Um, you can find the Dear Operation podcast on Facebook. We have an interview with Gavin Castleton that we are, I think Steve just finished up. The yeah, first I have like literally maybe earlier. 20 minutes more of editing and then just uh, uh, proofing and that's it. By the time anyone hears this, both those episodes will be out anyway, so it's it's all redundant. But anyway, uh, I, I hope you enjoy what we're doing. Um, go check out some of our interviews. We have some big things planned. We're very excited to um, continue doing what we're doing. So, yeah, we appreciate you listening. And guys, did you want to sign off with anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I, this, was a, this was a very fun episode. I think uh, it, it was nice having this banter with Brew. Seeing him fall in another <laughs> hole again, and I know Steve had a had a cutoff before we did the episode. He messaged us. He's like, "Okay, this episode can't be any longer than an hour." I didn't say that. Minutes. We all we all agreed on that. And now and then Hunter is trying to keep true to it, and I'm like, "If we rush it now, <laughs> people are going to be pissed." <laughs> so now at two hours and 40 minutes uh we're exhausted anyone who made it this far listening is probably exhausted we're all gonna go have a good cry and for any of you listening to us at the so. gym i hope this is a very long and enjoyable gym session so yeah. <laughs> don't give can you imagine up. someone listening to us at the gym how how unmotivating i i, I can name you three people who listen to us at the gym <laughs> yeah wow Perhaps they they have to envision running from us, like oh god! This no, is... they they envision beating the shit out of us because of our spicy takes. I think, I think that might be. Well, it. thank you, everyone. All right. Well, um, yes, uh, we look forward to Act Three. I know Steve's looking forward to it, and Nick, we want to thank you for coming on. You were an awesome guest. You're and an awesome guest, dude. Yeah, thanks we'd for love to have you. We'd love to have you on again when we examine other albums, perhaps Deer Hunter, uh, perhaps another saga, because we know you break down albums pretty extensively. So. Feel free to tap us anytime. Uh, But anyway, yeah, we'd love to have you back. All right, gamers, have a good night. This has been the Dear Apparition Podcast. (laughs) Sweet.